This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, today we've got a very special guest on the podcast. His name is Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman. So a lot of you guys know who that is, but if you don't know who that is, he's a retired Lieutenant Colonel from the United States Army. He's an author and a renowned speaker, and his main focus is actually on the psychology of killing. Yes, of killing, right? So he's written a lot of seminal books um, in this area. So the two that you might be familiar with are On Killing, which was released in 1995, and On Combat, which was released in 2004. And so those really are seminal books in the understanding of the mental impact of killing. I'll even read the subtitles of those books, On Killing, The Psychological Cost of Learning to Kill in War and Society, and then On Combat, The Psychology and Physiology of Deadly Conflict in War and in Peace. So for a lot of you guys, you may have heard of the concept of the sheepdog, right? So On Combat is the book where that was introduced. That's where we get the idea of the wolf, the sheep, and the sheepdog. But he's also got a new book out that is coming out this month. And for those of you listening on time, it has just been released. And that is called On Spiritual Combat, 30 Missions for Victorious Warfare. So I'll just read a very short description of the book for you so you can get an idea of it. On Spiritual Combat is the spiritual warfare guide for military members, law enforcement officers, first responders, and all sheepdogs. It prepares their hearts and minds for battle, teaching them to identify, understand, and fight evil forces. So for some of you guys that aren't military or law enforcement or first responders, this is still applicable to you because of the sheepdog mindset. And for those of you that have never heard of the sheepdog mindset, I don't really want to ruin it because we're going to hear from the actual guy that came up with that concept. But in addition to some of the things he does on the psychology of killing, he has two books about, I guess you could call it violence and our youth. And those are Stop Teaching Our Kids to Kill, A Call to Action Against TV, Movie, and Video Game Violence, written back in 1999, and Assassination Generation, Video Games, Aggression, and the Psychology of Killing. So this guy has spent a lot of time talking about these topics that are huge topics for us, right? And there's so many things that we don't even understand about violence. We don't understand about violence in our own lives and certainly as it is perpetuated throughout the rest of society. This guy has literally traveled the world to teach people to have a bulletproof mind and you know how schools can be safe and be filled with healthy students. Same things with churches. He spends a lot of time thinking about this. But the thing about this conversation, guys, and it's a long one, this is actually the second recording of the interview. The first recording got lost in the ether. It was one of those things, you know, Murphy's Law, it, it eventually happened to us. We lost the audio for that first interview. But I can remember the answers from the first interview. And this guy's depth of knowledge is so vast that he basically didn't give the same answer twice. The, the, the both interviews would be completely different. I mean, only two people will have ever heard the first one. It was me and him actually in the interview room. But with this one, it's just completely different. And we go into a lot of different areas, guys. And so I'll ask him a question and he'll flow into a lot of other different topic areas and then bring it back to the question. Again, it's just his depth of knowledge on all these topics that is incredibly exciting to listen to. And for those of you that are like, oh, this is a little bit longer, make sure that you can listen to this one all the way through, okay? Because there are nuggets all the way through. It's not like this crescendos at any point. There are definitely nuggets for you all the way through. So if I'm not uh, doing a great job of selling it to you at this point, I'm not sure what else I can do for you. So guys, without further ado, let's get into it. Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman, welcome to Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Hello, Kyle Thompson. It is my honor to be on board with you and the magnificent sheepdogs you've got that are, that are listening to this podcast. You know, something I try to say right up front is, uh, is what I honor you and I honor your listeners. Across the years, I've been on 60 Minutes and 2020 and Larry King and, and, uh, all, and, and they never added up to a hill of beans. 
They only had a few minutes. They edited it to say what they wanted it to say. And and a week later, it was ancient history. Right. And, and there was a time where there wasn't truly citizen journalism. You know, you had two newspapers in uh, in most cities. You had three networks, you know, maybe a little more as years went by. Maybe 20 national periodical magazines. And if you didn't get on them, you didn't have an audience. And and, and all of that, you know, with the exception of maybe the newspapers and magazines were just, they appeared and they were gone and, and they were ephemeral. And, and there was no way to, to be able to get around the roadblock created by the media as it existed. And now we, we, we've got deeper levels of, in, of meaning and, and attention. Those of you that are listening, I honor you for seeking deeper knowledge. And, and, and Kyle, you for putting together this podcast, I honor you. And a and hundred years from now, people may go back and listen to these as part of a process of trying to understand what happened during these times. And I believe with all my heart, Kyle, that these are amazing times. And God has put you here for just such a time as this. Things are bad. You know, and, and up front, let me lay that foundation on how bad they are. Uh, I, I teach cops in all 50 states. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I teach every federal agency, a guest uh, instructor, and, and I've presented over 100 universities and colleges. And I often uh, present to the criminal justice. I'm their guest CJ presenter, criminal justice. They have all the alumni, all the students, all the CJ faculty. And I open up by saying criminal justice is a fundamentally flawed area of research. Because how do we measure crime? Well, the murder rate, wrong. The murder rate is being held down by medical technology. And, and this is huge. When we talk about money, we talk about inflation-adjusted dollars. I was invited to the vice president's office last uh, last August uh, to brief him on the media, you know, on the video games and my book, uh, Assassination Generation. I said, we have inflation-adjusted dollars. We need medically-adjusted murders. And it will absolutely transform the way we see violence in our society. We have, uh, we have one solid study came out right around the year 2000. It said if we had 1970s medical technology, the murder rate would be three to four times what it is. So we have one solid data point that even, even from 1970 to 2000, they, they, we cut the number of people murdered by a quarter, to a quarter, by three quarters. And, and, and it's even more so today. One medical expert tells me he believes tourniquets alone have cut the murder rate in half in just the last decade. Uh, uh, Ten years ago, nobody carried a tourniquet. Now everybody carries a tourniquet. Cops got tourniquets. I have one in my pocket all the time. It, cop slaps on a tourniquet, saves a life, he's prevented a murder. If, in these incredibly violent times with the, with the, the, the uh, half a million cops on duty every day, if just 20, 30 cops a day slap on a tourniquet, save a life, prevent a murder, we've cut the murder rate in half. And so in the last couple of years, the homicide rate has exploded. And it's nobody even talks about it. The few times they do, they say, well, it's nothing compared to the 1970s. Baloney. Sure. Allow for medical technology. Things are bad. Mexico is a howling war zone. You know, when, when, when I was a young soldier, when I was a kid, we popped across the border, Juarez, Tijuana, had a nice meal, did a little shopping. Ain't nobody popping over the border in Mexico, meal and shopping. And all of Latin America is so bad, they're fleeing to Mexico. It's like the frying pan to the fire. Things are coming unglued in every direction. These are desperate, violent times. And God has put you here for just such a time as this. 
We are the sheepdogs who rise up in the face of evil. I am a sheepdog. And, 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 and this is as far as the minions of hell are gone. And, and that's what it's all about. To, to, in the end, we don't fight this battle physically, although we've got to have that foundation. We're in the middle of a desperate spiritual battle warfare for the, for the survival of our families, of our loved ones, of our nation, of our very way of life is being threatened in this desperate battle. And you and the magnificent people listening, you were called here for just such a time as this. Well, that's a hell of an intro, guys. Yeah. If you weren't yeah. ready, if you weren't ready, you should get ready because, guys, we're going to talk about so many different things today because I just got to tell you, Dave, whenever I was looking at uh, getting you on and whenever I told some of my friends that we were able to work that out schedule-wise, they were so jacked. They were so excited because my, yeah. my group, my personal Foxhole, has spent a lot of time reading some of your books, especially on combat. And we're going to talk about on combat today and on killing and your your new book that we're very, very excited about on spiritual combat and you know assassination generation and all of them. And, and we're going to get into a lot of really deep areas because you're bringing up a lot of things that are very timely to the, the COVID-19 environment that we're living in right now, where it looks like some of our liberties are, are being eroded around us, but also the fact that we're in this everlasting battle with the spiritual realm and with, you know, the forces of darkness. And we're going to get into all that, guys. Don't you worry. Just stick with us. But I do want to start the way I normally start whenever I talk to folks that have a military background is for you personally, for Dave Grossman. What was it about the military that was attractive to you? And, and for you growing up, you know, why join the military as opposed to going and doing something else? Well, you know, my family had a real military tradition. My dad was in when I was born. Uh, my, my, my uncle was a World War II veteran. I always looked up to, you know, their father, our grandfather was a machine gunner in World War I. And we had this, this sense that of service to our nation to give something back. But also, uh, uh, as a young man, I, I read a lot. I, I was just a science geek, a, a reading geek. Uh, I was into the martial arts. But uh, and, and one book that was a transformational book in my life was uh, Robert Heinlein's uh, Starship Troopers. There was a time when, uh, when that book was on the, the, uh, the Force Comm Officers recommended reading list. There were only two books, that were science fiction, and one was Ender's Game and Starship Troopers. And if you, you put together any... 20 infantry officers in those days, 10 had read Starship Troopers and are trying to shove it down the throat of the other 10. And uh, the movie, the only redeeming characteristic of the movie is it might have made somebody actually read the book. Heinlein was called the science fascist after it came out in the early 1960s. It's a powerful book. And, and it talked about how you can't even vote until you have served in the armed forces of your nation. And that's the world that he kind of created. And he, he took this young guy who... Uh, who enlisted, he went into an elite unit, uh, and then he went to OCS, and then he uh, he moved on, and, 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 and that was like my model. I went into the military with this model in my mind that I'm gonna go to OCS, I'm gonna, and, and on my own time, I, I enlisted right out of high school. I was a punk out of high school. I, I would have been totally wasted in, the, in, in college. Uh, it, it, it took the army about 18 months to really beat some sense into me. I, I remember the day <laughs> when I said, I can play this game. I can win this game. Why am I fighting these guys? It was like this magic moment. But uh, but I had this model in my head. I went to college and got two years of college my own time. That's what you needed for OCS at that time. I went to OCS. I, you know, I was an Army Ranger and uh, infantry officer, and, and, and I loved every minute of it. But, you know, uh, I came in in 1974, got out in 98. That was the Cold War. You know, our war was the war that never happened, the ultimate achievement. We, we, the, our enemy was deterred. 
The Russians were deterred. The price of war was too high. And I, and I tell all my people today, the current enemy cannot be deterred. The terrorists who would attack us uh, would murder our children, attack our daycares, attack sure. our schools. Yep. The, the people who attack us are evil. And, and, and they cannot be deterred. They're not like the Russians. What are we going to do to them? We're already done. They got nothing to lose. Yeah, they there's no concept of there's no concept of mutually assured destruction yeah, with that yes, enemy. Yeah, so so they can only be hunted down and, and around the planet and, and and nailed like a whack-a-mole around the planet wherever they pop up, we go and whack them like a whack-a-mole and drive them back into the ground. It's an endless and almost thankless task. But my war, war was a cold war. It came in 1974, and we had Vietnam veterans all around us, and we wanted to know what combat was going to be like. And, and here's the crazy part of the whole deal, Kyle. How in the world could we have had 500 years of gunpowder combat and not let people know the shots are probably get muted? Tunnel vision, auditory exclusion, slow motion time. So my initial focus on trying to understand, and, and I, I, I've been able to do this. I think uh, nobody in history has been able to go into this field and dig out all these things that we need to know. And my first book was on killing. And I thought what it was all about was killing. I thought of the heart of war what was happening was this this taboo of killing, the, the trauma associated with killing. I wrote my first book on killing, very important book, uh, half a million copies sold in the U.S. alone, translated eight languages, Marine Corps Commandant's Required Reading. A Google scholar said it's been cited in over 2,300 scholarly works. And and it's, it's a good book, but it's academic. And what I found out was this. I retired from the Army in, uh, in, uh, in December 97 to January 98. And, uh, and I immediately was presenting and training. People knew my book. And at that point in time, before the war began, after before 9-11, the only people in combat every day were law enforcement. And, and when you're in a life and death battle every day, when you're really getting that, I call it the daily acid test of combat, all the goofy stuff that gets you killed goes out the window pretty fast. Right. And if it sustains itself over time, that means it works. And, and, and I thought, who are these cops, these, these magnificent, you know, sheepdogs are out there every day, these federal agents, and I'm, who am I to teach them? But I, I realized that, that at the core of the matter is we peeled away the killing. For those who fully prepare themselves, killing is just not that big a deal. It's the other stuff that's in my book on combat, and that's the important one. And then, of course, the next layer of the onion is the spiritual matter as we dig deeper in. But, but on combat, the book on spiritual combat, is actually intended to to be kind of a, a study guide, for, a spiritual study guide for on combat to work hand in hand. And, uh, and on combat was terribly important because now we're talking about the fact that you don't hear the shots in, in, when you hunt and, and, and that you got tunnel vision, auditory exclusion, slow motion time, memory gaps, memory distortions. How in the world could we have had all of these years of combat, all of these generations and centuries, millennia, and not have captured this information. And the thing to realize is the people in combat, are, are it's, it's hard for them to stand back and, and look at this from a scholarly perspective. It took somebody a very unique combination, and praise God, he just put me there, gave me the tools to put together this book. And so on combat, and especially what happens after the incident, you re-experience the event. That's normal. It's how you deal with that that'll decide whether or not it becomes PTSD. 
Right. Just got a wonderful email from a from a lady today. She's an ER nurse. She's gone through you know COVID dynamics right now, and she said, "I thought I was you know had thick skin. I thought I had prepared for my life, and this business is the COVID business just blindsided me. It's been hard for me." She said, "I read your book on combat. It's been recommended a lot in the medical community." She said, "I thought this is something that would take me away from there, put me in another environment, and help me escape." She said, I couldn't have been more wrong. She said, this book talked to me and talked to my life and was the most important thing that's happened to me throughout this whole process. So praise God for people like that every day. The breathing exercise, which is a powerful tool to regain control. Today, we know a swig of water is even better. Pull you from a fight or flight to rest and digest with that swig of water. Uh, and and that, yeah, I talked to people about this backlash. You know, on, on, in combat, we all know this fight or flight, sympathetic nervous system. But the body will backlash in the opposite direction, which is, which is parasympathetic nervous system, often called rest and digest, also called feed and breed. So fight or flight, feed and breed. After a, 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 an event, fire guys, EMS, cops tell me, after they're in this traumatic event, and they go back home and often they gorge themselves and... Sometimes they have some pretty intense sex, and it scares them. It's, it's, I'm crazy. This, this horrible thing just happened. Is it the affirmation of life in the face of death? Is it a hormonal, scourge, uh, a hormonal surge? Yes, it's both. And it's normal, and it scares people. And, and so, you know, this whole dynamic uh, that was in on combat was terribly important, but I knew that, that at, the, at the heart of the matter were spiritual matters. Since we peel away the layers of the onion, the perfect pearl of wisdom that lays at the bottom is, is I pray and I hope, is, uh, is on spiritual combat. Because we will never win this war without God on our side, without fighting the spiritual side of the battle. We wrestle not right. against flesh and blood. And so that's kind of my, my story, my combat dynamic. Uh, the quick and dirty for those that are going to be in a life and death event, uh, I really recommend on combat. And, of course, those who want to dig deeper. Kyle, you had the... Uh, opportunity. And I, w I was terribly honored to be able to give you a, a pre-release copy of the book. Uh, I think you'll find that uh, that uh, now that you, you can get a paper copy in your hand, we can dig a little deeper into it. But uh, but that's the story of, of where it came and how it went. Well, that's great. And, and I again, it was such an honor to even receive that advanced copy, to be able to see it and to be able to make fun of all my friends that couldn't get it before I did. So that was a really good thing for me to be able to make fun of them and say that they couldn't get a hold of it. And we're definitely going to get to on spiritual combat and on combat. But we've got to go to where it all started in 1995 with the book on killing. And it's the psychological cost of learning to kill in war and society. And so this is kind of a seminal book in the area of really military psychology, but really the, the psychology of killing of death, right. those types of things. But in that book, and, and you go into a lot of detail in that book, and I know uh, we're going to spend a little bit more time on the subsequent book on combat. But in yeah. that book, you display that most people have a, a truly phobia level response to violence. And it's something that they, they really can't even control. It's something that they've never even thought of. And then whenever it confronts them right to their face, they either clam up or they freak out. And it's something that they, they're just not prepared for. So yeah. can you give us a little bit more detail on why that is for so many people? Uh, you know, the, the, the amazing surprise when you really look at combat is how many people at the moment of truth will not pull the trigger. And it's, it's astounding. In World War II, uh, uh, SLA Marshall was, uh, was the 
historian in the in the uh, in the Pacific Theater, and then he was moved to the European Theater. He was a head historian of of capturing the data in World War II. He did reviews afterwards, and, and what he found out was only about fifteen to twenty percent of the individual riflemen would fire their weapon at the moment of truth. They'd be brave. They'd run ammunition. Crew served weapons where you had a gunner and assisting gunner like machine gun, always fire. Right, right. If a leader is standing over your shoulder demanding you fire, people fire. As soon as the leader leaves, they stop firing. Key weapons like a BAR or a flamethrower, everybody in the team knows whether or not it's operating. They usually fire. But the individual rifleman left his own devices. SLA Marshall says we slam into this resistance. And every, every almost every species has a resistance against killing their own kind. Piranha will sink their teeth and anything hits the water, they fight each other with flicks of the tail. Uh, uh, rattlesnakes will sink their fangs into anything. That poisonous snakes wrestle, wrestle each other. They don't sink their fangs in each other. Uh, animals with antlers and horns and their territorial and mating battles, they fight head to head in a very harmless fashion against any other species. They go to the side, they gut, they gore. So faced with this life and death dynamic, the, when the forebrain shuts down and you're a frightened human being and the midbrain takes over, people don't pull the trigger. And that's really the greatest secret. And and the military learned that in World War II. We knew it was true. S.L.A. Marshall released his book. He briefed Eisenhower. Eisenhower became the president. Uh, and, and they knew it. And then the Korean War. And they built on on his stuff and, and they got the firing rate up about 50%. And, uh, and, and ultimately... Today, we've mastered the process of making it possible to pull the trigger. We make it a conditioned response. In World War II, we trained our troops to fire bullseye targets. We have no known case any bullseyes ever attacking our troops. If you've been in the armed forces right. for the last, since the Korean War, I guarantee you never once shot a bullseye. A man-shaped silhouette pops in your field of view. You hit the target, target drops. Stimulus response, stimulus response. Like a pilot in a flight simulator. Like a kid in a fire drill. Modern training has made killing a conditioned response. And oh, by the way, the video games are doing the exact same thing to our kids and causing an explosion of violence worldwide. And that's really, from a, this, this scholarly dynamic, that's the most important thing out of a, on killing. And, and then we talked about what we did to our troops in Vietnam and how we sent them as individuals. They came as individuals. They left as individuals. Uh, what we did to them, uh, they were spit on when they came home. It really did happen. And, and, and so a lot of important things in, in on killing. But for those who are actually going to be in the fight, we're in on combat. But one last thing on killing. People say, well, 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 well they point to some horrible crime. That, ah, that proves that man is a killer. No, that's an outlier. That's literally one in a million. You explain to me that 99.9% .9 of our citizens go a lifetime and never kill anybody or even seriously attempt to. Divorce, infidelity, layoff, traffic accidents. In, in a lifetime of provocation, less than one in a thousand people will even seriously attempt to take a human life. Explain that. That's the hard part to explain. Not that weird outlier, the vast, vast majority who won't kill. And, and, and that's that resistance. And we're turning that resistance off. The evil things we're feeding to our children. And that kind of a sidebar becomes my book, Assassination Generation. 
gave a copy to the president, I was invited to the White House, had the Parkland School Massacre, gave a copy to the vice president, invited to the White House again to brief him. And, uh, and, and how bad things are and how destructive it has become and how we're hiding the reality from ourselves. And, and so um, that, that's kind of on killing in a nutshell. And, and that aspect of on killing, assassination generation, we've got to protect our children, the evil we're feeding our children, and the sleep deprivation. The, the cell phones, the, 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 the video games, the text messaging. We're in the middle of a worldwide epidemic of sleep deprivation. And it's killing us and it's killing our children. Uh, suicides worldwide have exploded. Teen suicides have exploded. Tweenage, call them teenagers, 10, 11, 12 year old. Tweenage girls suicide rate in America has tripled per capita in just the last decade. And, and I tell people, not only are these things empowering violence, but they're creating an epidemic of sleep deprivation. And here's parenting 101 for the 21st century. When you send your kid to bed at night, take their cell phone away from them. No laptop in the room, no cell phone in the room. They got to go to the room and sleep. And here's the key. In, in the U.S. Armed Forces, we study every suicide intensely. And there's a myth out there. You've heard of 22 veterans a day take their life. But the word veteran means anybody who served in the armed forces. In, in the 40s and the 50s, 60s, right up to the early 70s, we drafted everybody. Elvis Presley was drafted. Elvis was a veteran. Most of those 22 suicides a day, and one is too many, and every life is precious. But most of them are, are 70, 80, 90-year-old men. Actual suicides coming out of this war, and, and one's too many, maybe one or two. But our suicides in the active duty military <clears throat> have nothing to do with combat. But a sleep-deprived soldier can be up to five times more likely to take their life. <clears throat> One of the greatest predictors of suicide is sleep deprivation. And, and so uh, uh, you have impaired judgment. It's like being drunk. 18 hours without sleep, your impaired judgment equal to 0.08 legally drunk. 24 hours without sleep. Your impaired judgment equal to a 0.10 above legally drunk. Two nights without sleep, and you are psychotic. Any graduate of Army Ranger School tell about hallucinations on the third day without sleep. So a cop came up to me during the break. He said, I had a good girl. He said she was an A student. She said, Dad, it's embarrassing. You don't have to take me a cell phone every night. You can trust me. He said, so I trusted her. I let her keep her cell phone. He said, a little while later, she took her life. And my little girl took her life. And he said, I never knew the hell she was living in until we looked at the text messages on her cell phone. Night after night of ceaseless, relentless, vicious bullying. And he can't just ignore that stuff. We're not wired that way. And one of the things that happens with text messaging and cell phones, it makes people far more cruel, far more vicious. The bullying it come out of this, this current dynamic is almost hard to wrap your mind around. This, the, the video games train you to take pleasure from inflicting suffering. You can say evil things to people and you don't have to be face to face with them. So he said, I, I, he said, I knew my little girl was bullied to death. What I didn't understand until now, she was sleep deprived, tormented and bullied to death in front of my eyes. And I let it happen. He said, I can't ignore that text message in the middle of the night. How, how could he expect their kids to? He said, the one thing on earth I could have done for my little girl 
was take her cell phone every night, let her turn off all the bad stuff in this world. And, 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 and so as we love our children, please, the, the other major killer of our kids exploded, suicides exploded, traffic deaths have exploded. And the reason why airline pilots and truck drivers require to get enough sleep. If your kid's going to be behind the wheel of a vehicle, they need a good night's sleep the night before. I, I've got teenage grandchildren now. I had teenage boys, three of them. And, I, and the number one killer of kids at that point in time was, uh, was, was traffic deaths. And, and I was deeply concerned about it. It's the thing most likely to kill my kids, the thing I should... And I made sure, didn't have a lot of financial resources in those days, but I made sure they all had a car with an airbag. And two out of three, and they all wore their seatbelt, they all had an airbag, two out of three tested it. But nobody told me the single most important thing is make sure they go night's sleep in a truly dark room and, and get quality sleep. Nobody told me about that. So two major killers have exploded worldwide. Decade after decade, traffic deaths came down, airbags, seatbelts, medical technology, now worldwide they're up. And worldwide, suicides have exploded, traffic deaths have exploded, and the new factor is this epidemic of sleep deprivation being created by this evil that we're inflicting upon ourselves and especially on our children. And then the third major killer of this exploded is drug overdoses, the opiate epidemic. Why opiates? Why? Prescription opiates have always been there. Why are they suddenly the drug of choice? Sleep deprivation creates chronic pain. The muscles and tendons give a chance to fully relax. Doc, I heard all the time, give me a, a pill to fix. You don't need a pill. You need more sleep. And you need to knock off the caffeine shortly after lunch. They're stopping you from getting the deep cycle sleep that allows those tendons and muscles to fully relax. So, you know, that, that, that all starts with on killing. It goes into on, on, on assassination generation. And then there's a chapter on spiritual combat that kind of recaps that whole rest dynamic. And, and, and that's one direction that God has taken me. The other direction then is that the day-to-day -day dynamics of combat and then the spiritual combat on top of that. Praise God, every step of the way, he's, he's pounded me into a, you know, I, I, I didn't want psychology. I didn't want a psychology degree. I, I'm an army ranger. I'm a, a beady-eyed killer. Like, you know, you know, I don't want psychology. But I wanted to go to grad school in the army's time. And I applied to everybody. And I got accepted to teach psychology at West Point. I said, psychology? I don't want no stinking psychology. But I, I want to go to grad school in the Army's time. I'll, I'll study the psychology of killing. And, and, and it, you know, like God pounded a square peg into a round hole. People who would study psych would never study what I studied. People who studied what I studied would never be a psychologist. And poof, those two fields were brought together by God to make everything come in that direction and that, that part of, of where he's taken me, what he's had me do. Uh, and uh, and it's scary stuff. These are scary times. Again, Mexico is a is a is a war zone. It's hard to even wrap your mind how bad it is. And many nations in Latin America are so much worse than Mexico that flee into Mexico. Oh, by the way, they all have gun control. How's that working out for them? Yeah. And, and I, when I present, I do a list of the top twenty most violent nations on the planet. Go to go to YouTube or, or go to a, a Wikipedia. Look at worldwide murder rates. Look at the chart. On the top of the chart, click the rate, and then click again to get the worst ones on top. And look at the 30 most violent nations on the planet. You know what they all have in common? Unarmed citizens. So that's another angle of what I teach, you know. And, and I teach about M1 carbines. Six million M1 carbines made in World War II. They flooded the market. Well, semi-automatic, high-capacity military weapons. <laughs> that's not new. They were junk. They, they, you could buy them for 10 bucks a pop. How many M1 carbines would you buy for 10 bucks a pop? The guns didn't change.
we changed. And worldwide, we're paying a tragic price. Europe, across Europe, the assault rate has exploded. And for the last decade and a half, they won't even report to Interpol what the crime rate is because they don't want people to know. If it was better, I guarantee you they'd be saying things are crazy bad. And that's all one angle of what I'm doing as far as the secular part. To, but it comes back to the spiritual part. We will never win this war by focusing solely on the physical side. We've got to focus on the spiritual side. And that's where the war will be fought or won. That is the root of every battle that we would ever be in. It is the core of what we've got to do. Right. And we'll, we'll stick with the psychology side before we uh, fully transition into the spiritual yes. side. But yes. that's why on killing is so important and, and basically because it gave rise and gave even more of a foundation to the next book you wrote uh, in the subject matter, which was in 2004. And that was on combat. And that's the psychology and physiology of deadly conflict in war and in peace. And so this is definitely an extension of on killing, but it goes more into how a person can actually cope with the physiological and psychological effects of violence. And this is a especially for soldiers and police officers who have basically been forced via their training to kill in the line of duty or, you know, risk personal injury or death to themselves or the people that are near them. And so I guess the, the first question for on killing, uh, which will, or for on combat rather, is why write this particular book as a follow-up? Because there are a lot of people that look at on killing as a standalone book. They don't look at it as kind of the, the foundation of something else. They just kind of look at it as its own entity. Why not just leave on killing alone? Why go ahead and write on combat? Well, you know, what, what happened was I retired from the Army, and I was teaching military and law enforcement, and, uh, and uh, law, law enforcement, the only ones in the fight every day. Everything I was doing was based on them. And, and, and my presentation evolved to meet their needs. There was a constant interactive feedback loop. They would come to me. They would talk to me during the breaks, their emails. And, and my presentation completely evolved to a totally new place to meet their needs. And then 9-11 started. And my son goes on his first combat deployment. Uh, my son, uh, Spec Ops, nine combat tours, three Bronze Stars, praise God. And, uh, and uh, uh, the book I literally wrote for my kid going into the fight was the early draft of On Combat. And, and, and not just my kid, but all the other kids going. I felt this tremendous calling, this responsibility to get this book out. Uh, because we had our sons and daughters in the fight, not just not just our cops now, but our nations at war. And, you know, uh, four years into the war, there was nobody left who enlisted before the war got stuck with the war. And there was never been a draft in this war. Everybody in this fight for at least the last decade has enlisted or reenlisted in time of war. Think about that. The last time we fought a war with 100% wartime volunteers was American Revolution. Started in 1812. We always had people enlisted before the war, got stuck with the war. Long as well had the draft. You know, we, it's hard for us to, to understand how amazing it is to have fought two wars for two decades with no draft, 100% volunteers. These kids are magnificent. You know, like I said, my war was a Cold War. Ain't a whole lot happened there. Uh, you know, Grenada was a day. Panama was a day. Gulf One was four days. If you, you add them all up, and, and I, I wasn't there, that they wouldn't add up to, to a week. These kids at AC more in a week we would have seen in, uh, in, in our whole careers. And we are just from an old geezer talking to the young kids out there. We are so proud of you. What a magnificent job you've done. 
And, and my contribution is just this book, and it's still on Marine Corps Commandant's Required Reading List, issued in the DA Academy and the, and the, the Marshall's Academy, Required Reading, and many, many other schools and dynamics. And, and it's, it's, it's the tool that I can use to help them in their in their hour of need and their moment of truth uh, and, and, and others to understand their needs. Uh, it's being used a lot in the psych community, the medical community, ER docs, the nurse I just told you about that I've read it. Uh, and, and again, I feel like God had his hand on it every step of the way. You know, and Dave, this is your kid in the fight now. Write the book for him. What does he need to know? And, and what have you learned for, during this time to be able to put that book together? And so uh, uh, it's gone through several editions. On Killing is Done, we did a second edition, kind of a timeless version. Uh, on Combat is Living, Evolving. I have gobs of notes to put in a next edition of On Combat somewhere down the road. But, uh, but it, it's been a beautiful path, and it, it's, I've seen God's hand on it every step of the way when he said, this is not enough. You've got to dig deeper. Uh, and, it, and it's a beautiful thing when, when we feel his hand on us, we can see his hand in our life. Uh, it's, it's just a powerful and beautiful thing. And, and one last thing, uh, an, another chapter on spiritual combat is the idea of the veterans coming out of this war. Now, remember that they're not all suicidal. Uh, you know, one or two suicides are too many. Suicides up everywhere. The 22 veterans a day, they want you to think it's all from this war, and and, and it's not. And then, and so the suicide rates are an issue, but they're not all suicidal, and they don't all have PTSD. The the reality is, you know, I I, I show people a, a page right out of the the VA website. Uh, uh, 16 percent of the troops who deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan have PTSD. 11% of the ones who didn't deploy have PTSD. About 10% of the population, you push the right button, you get a post-traumatic response. About 5% contracted PTSD. The British study Afghanistan, 5%. The Dutch in Afghanistan, 5%. So I go to national, international psych conference. They say, well, Dave, the British troops are 5% PTSD. Why are the Americans so much higher? They're not. So the thing to understand is we're darn good at treating that 5%. And they're stronger from the experience. But a new greatest generation is coming home. You know, and, and Nietzsche said, what doesn't kill us only makes us stronger. I'll tell people, Nietzsche stole that from the Bible. 2,000 years before Nietzsche, Romans chapter 5, we glory in tribulation. For tribulation, work of patience, patience, experience, experience, hope, and hope maketh not ashamed. A magnificent, you know, the greatest generation, World War II, were a product of, of four years of war. Napoleon's old guard at the most was 11 years of war. What kind of incredible warriors are rising up from uh, from from this war? I'm a huge Lord of the Rings geek. Uh, uh, I, I, I love C.S. Lewis. I love Tolkien. Lewis wrote the, the, the Narnia series as a Christian allegory. Tolkien wrote the Lord of the Rings as a Christian allegory from a, a more Catholic perspective. But one of the things that's left out of the movie, and everybody needs to read the book and understand that these really are a spiritual allegory on on same standpoint as as uh, as as C.S. Lewis in the Narnia series. And at the end of the movie, the the hobbits go back. You know, at the end of the book, they call the scouring of the Shire, and these warriors who sent these years in the war, they come back home and they realize that evil has sunken its teeth, and back home. And so the warriors are the ones that rise up. And, uh, and, and, and clean house back at home. And what a powerful message that is. We just saw a special election where, uh, you know, a, a, a fighter pilot uh, uh, overturned a, a Democratic seat. I'm not, I'm not, pro, I'm not 
pro to any party. I'm, I'm my my acid test for every politician is gun rights. Am I a, a, a peon that can't be trusted with the tools to protect my loved ones? I have my family's secret service. My family has the same right to security the president does if I'm willing to provide it. And so that's the acid test for me. Am I a child that can't be trusted with the tools to protect myself? Or, or am I a free citizen who's got the right to have the tools to protect my loved ones? And, and so we saw this, this vote just in California for the first time in 20 years, we flipped a Democrat anti-gun seat with a fighter pilot who's come home. And, 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 and this is the theme of this new greatest generation rising up. They're not suicidal, homicidal, PTSD-riddled nutcases. They are the nation's finest. A tiny percentage need our help. We'll be there for them. But a new greatest generation is rising up, and there's cause for great hope uh, for where we will move in the, in the years to come as, as, as these incredible warriors come back and use their their skills to apply to our nation. Yeah, and that's a, that's a lot of great context on that as well. And it, it's very dense at the same time. And that's what I was getting when I was reading on combat. It's been a few years since I've read it, but it's just an incredibly dense book. And there's a lot in there. There's a lot to think through and there's a lot to discuss. But perhaps the most notable part of that book is where you introduce the idea of the sheepdog. And so most people will have heard of this before. It's, you know, the wolf, the sheep, and the sheepdog. And most people may have heard it first in the movie American Sniper. So there's a scene uh, early on in that where a father is sitting down at the dinner table with his wife and his two boys, and he's talking to his oldest son at the dinner table about what it means to be a protector. He had interceded on his younger brother's behalf earlier that day, and he had finished the fight, and his dad was basically telling him what what that means. And Because here's the thing with the sheep, is a sheep will protect it itself to a degree. It'll protect the the sheep that are in its family, but it's not going to sacrifice itself for somebody else's offspring, right? And the wolf is constantly prowling around looking for sheep to take advantage of. And it's the sheepdog that intercedes on their behalf to potentially sacrifice themselves. And it's it's that living a life of sacrifice that is really at the core of being a sheepdog. And you really introduce that in this book. And now it's it's everywhere. You got companies that are named after after this concept. You've got uh, you know people just dropping this in normal everyday vernacular. And I'm probably most excited for your answer on this, but just give my audience an idea of where you came up with this concept, how, how did it even, even enter your brain and kind of your overall thoughts on how it's kind of taken on a life of its own at this point? Yeah. You know, it was, it was an old uh, army colonel, Vietnam vet, one of my interviews, just a sentence from this old guy doing an interview for On Killing. He said, you know, I, I learned at a young age, there's evil in the world. There's wolves who are, and there's innocent people, the sheep. And, and I realized that, that I had to be a sheep doc to protect the innocent. I dedicate my life to military career and uh, and and I, and and being that sheepdog. And, and so I, I ran with that sentence. I, I put a couple of sentences about it in uh, on killing, and the response was huge. And then I, I carried it further with a whole section on combat. And then we wrote our book, Sheepdogs. You know, and Stephanie Rogish, uh, a elementary teacher in Florida, said you should write a children's book about the sheepdog. And I said, well, let's do it together. And, uh, and, and, and it talks about just what you outlined, you know, for children. That they, she, she read it to five-year-olds in, in kindergarten that they got it. A cop told me that the, his three-year-old had him read it to her every night. And, uh, but it, it's really a pretty powerful and simple message. And, and the older you get, the more you get it. And at the back of the book is the original sheepdog essay. So, uh, you know, adults are getting it. That, you know, more mature teens are getting it. But it talks about... Uh, 
it, the the sheep will die to protect the ones they love. Only the sheepdog loves enough to die for the people's loved ones. And in my most recent book, I can now say only the sheepdog and the great shepherd love enough to die for other people's loved ones. And 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 and, and I, I something I just put in. I, I, it flowed from the sheepdog to on spiritual combat. That that uh, uh, you go to any war memorial, look at the names of those warriors that laid their life down. And, and sheepdog have to die. Sheepdogs, first responders, military, law enforcement, they have to put their life in the line and just periodically die. Give us what we have. If we want a single generation without the magnificent men and women willing to put their life on the line, we would be doomed and destroyed. But the great shepherd had to die once and forever to give us eternal safety. And that's just the way the universe works. And without him, we would be doomed and damned. And, and so, you know, again, God just planted a seed and it grew and then it grew again. Today, what we're looking at, we're, we're, we're going to be doing... Uh, we got a, a, a online course to go with on spiritual combat. My co-author Adam Davis really doing great stuff on that, and we're gonna we're gonna start doing sheepdog spiritual warfare seminars starting in the fall. And it's my prayer for a long time that God will raise up a sheepdog revival, a, a sheepdog revival that will sweep around the world and touch thousands of lives. And you know, I, I, the idea of being God's son. Jesus paid the price, the beaten, bloody, battered body of Jesus for our to hold our head high and look at the Father as a, as a beloved, adopted son. And that's a beautiful thing, but you know, I have a little trouble with that. I, right now, just wrapping my mind around it, I know it'll be that way in heaven, but right now I, I, I can wrap my mind around being God's faithful sheepdog. You know, we love dogs, you know, and, and dogs, are, are they, they love us. And they're loyal to us. And that's, you know, all I have to give God is my love. And that's all he asks of me. And that's really my relationship with that dog. And, you know, dogs lick inappropriate parts of their body and the, and their, their mating habits are not even remotely a good model for us. They, but we know that and we forgive them for that. And we try to guide them down paths where they avoid that. And, and I feel like God, has, that, that, that is a great analogy. And, and I've entered my stuff for a long time. My emails with the, one day the, the sheepdog will finally rest at the feet of the great shepherd and yearn to hear those words. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. So, so I, 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 we come full cycle with that sheepdog model. And, and I'll tell you what's really excited me is as a countdown, I'd, I'd like to work on LinkedIn a lot. We've got a Facebook page, a lot of limitations on Facebook. LinkedIn is a more business focused, gives you more freedom. But it, we, we post them on, on Facebook, but on LinkedIn, counting down like the last 10 days before the release of the book, I did a meme, a, 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 an image with some text loaded into it to, you know, to bring the book alive. And the last one was that image of the sheepdog, the old gray-muzzled sheepdog sitting in the grass. It says, one day the sheepdog will finally rest at the feet of the great shepherd. You know those words, I've done the good and faithful servant. And of all the ones I posted, far and away, that had the most likes. It had the most comments. It had the most people who viewed the page and actually went into it. All you gotta do is look at it and get it, but you dig into it, zoom it out. So, so God has taken that whole sheepdog model and taken it across the board. It's just a metaphor, you know, it, it's just a model. It, but we talk about the, the, 
their poem in on on spiritual combat of the Hound of Heaven, and and it's beautiful, beautiful poem. And the Hound of Heaven dogged him until he finally gave to God's love, and a beautiful message that was given. And and uh, and it doesn't talk in Scripture about dogs. Dogs and were kind of been considered to be pretty unclean uh, uh, in in those times. Our, our feelings have changed, but that's what we are. We're that loving, faithful, obedient hounds of heaven. And it's a good model for us to wrap our mind around. It seems to work. People embrace that sheepdog model. And I think it will be a powerful tool to help them accept God and understand about the great shepherd. Every step of the way, unknown to me, God is just opening the doors and that whole sheepdog model. And now we take it a step further, the sheepdog kids book. Uh, these are exciting things. When you just look back and see God's hand, see his footprints in your life throughout the the, 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 the years that you've been through and uh, you cannot deny his presence and his love and 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 all he asks is our love and it's all we have to give and it's a it's a beautiful thing so that, that's the sheepdog model taken from one end to the other i think yeah, absolutely. And Dave, really all of that, including many of the things that you've talked about up to this point, really leads to the book that you've released this year. And if you're listening to this on time, it was released this month, but it's on spiritual combat, 30 missions for victorious warfare. And again, I'm so thankful that you sent us an advanced copy. But one thing that struck me, even when reading through the book, is there's not chapters to this book. There's missions. There are 30 missions to this book. And so the thing is, is just instinctively when you're reading any type of book, whether it's self-help or some sort of a nonfiction book, you can kind of go into this autopilot mode in your brain where it's like, ah, I don't really need to pay too much attention to chapters, you know, five and, and 13. You know, there's a lot of content to cover. Maybe I can sort of skim this. But no, no, no. These are missions. And if you're given 30 missions in any real life type of context, you can't take one of them off. They all work together. They all coalesce. And so that's one thing that's really important about this book. And for those of you that are listening to this that have not gotten uh, the book yet, first of all, what's wrong with you? And second of all, that's the thing about this book is you have to be paying attention and giving it the full effort all the way through. But this really is a follow-up book to On Combat, and it's meant to be read alongside it at the end of each mission there's a section of on combat that you are to read that really helps accentuate some of the, the, to say the that ideas it can stand on its own you you don't have to read yeah. on combat sure but it gives yeah you absolutely a level of, of, of understanding you there you know what's really fun about this kyle i i'm such a fan of your ministry of what you're doing uh and and i know you and i are both huge fans of john eldridge and wild at heart sure we're, we're, we're raising wimpy christians we're raising we're raising you know people who don't don't have that way, but God wants us to have. We've got to draw from both, you know, the loving side of God and the warrior side of God. And the gentle, loving warrior, that combination dynamic is uh, is really what we're after. And and so in, in one chapter, we, we talk about you and I kind of went back to the same root source. I know you are kind of John Eldridge's uh, 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 successor in so many ways. And, and, and I think that's true. And I think it's a beautiful thing. But his Wild at Heart and then the equivalent book for women, you know, we've got a chapter, how do we raise these magnificent men and women who are worthy to be trained and worthy to be able to take on the the, the mantle of responsibility of the sheepdog under the great shepherd. And uh, and uh, uh, we both up turned to John Eldridge as our source on that, as our recommendation to others. And my book, uh, you know, the Sheepdog Kids book. Uh, but what, what amazing times we live in that 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 man has laid a foundation. In many ways, he is our C.S. Lewis uh, in, in America, laid that foundation. And, and, and you are quite readily his predecessor or his successor uh, in, in this field. Uh, and how it ties in with you and your, your listeners and your ministry 
uh, it just iron sharpens iron. And, and it makes a hair stand up in our arms. And you think about how God's been using us in, in two separate paths and then brought us together like this. It, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I appreciate you saying that. I don't know if I uh, can fully step into those shoes uh, as being John Eldridge's successor just quite yet, but it is certainly an aspirational identity that is uh, better than some others that you might have. But uh, the, the interesting thing about this book is there was a quote that really struck me early on in this book, and it's this yeah. quote here. It is our hope and intention, we humbly pray, that on spiritual combat is to spiritual warfare what on combat is to the physical battlefield. So I guess the, the first question I would ask you on 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 spiritual combat is why write such an overtly spiritual book as a follow-up to on combat? Well, you know, I, I think it's important uh, it, when, when we talk about, you know, to know him and to make him known, that's our mission. You know, the internal mission to love God, to love others as ourselves, and then to, to bring the word of his salvation and give him the honor and glory to all that we do. And we reap love and joy and peace and all kinds of good things. But uh, I, I think to, what we've got to do, especially among the kind of people that we're looking towards, sheepdogs, what we've got to do is we've got to get their attention and earn their respect from a, from a, a, a warrior sheepdog standpoint. And then they're willing to listen about the most important decision any human being will ever make to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, to, to, to love him and, and, and to be loved. And uh, and and uh, I, I I felt this burning in me. You know, when I, when I was a young Christian, I came to the Lord as a young sergeant, and uh, my wife and uh, and, uh, and, a, and a night school philosophy instructor who was also a preacher at a, at a local church. They brought my 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 wife and him brought me to the Lord, and uh, and and the first verse I memorized is, uh, and 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 I, and I, I love to. You know, you feel this burning urge to let people know about what the Lord's done for you and what he's done in your life. And and so I I, uh, I used to love the work. I worked as a battalion ops NCO, and I loved to work the night shift. And in the morning, before the first tiny crack of dawn, my job was to go from position to position on the perimeter, waking everybody up. And, uh, and, I, and I loved to kind of creep up on them. And, Shake them. You be very careful. Just shake them by the foot, you know, and keep your distance from, uh, from warriors in, on the battlefield, right? And I say, awake. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. That is therefore cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Huh? What? <laughs> not, not, yeah. not, the, not the best uh, uh, evangelism anybody's ever done. But you understand that deep need. And I felt in my heart all these years that I have not been sufficient. I have not fulfilled my mission in that side of the house and that, that that most critical mission to make him known to the world to to bring all this to the knowledge of his salvation and I, I felt like you know this is just the, the culmination of my life the important the, the single most important capstone anybody can put over their life and over their works is, is to make him known to the world and uh, and and everything leads up to this point and you know i i, I say at the end of the book there that uh I, I, I want to give you an angle on this. And uh, it's in the motivation for sheepdogs is love. And the deepest, most powerful motivation anybody can have is love. And the, the mama critter will die for her babies. She won't die for anybody else's babies. And, and because the mama critter loves. But the sheepdog loves enough to die for other people's loved ones. We say in the sheepdog book, they don't make them heroes. They're heroes because they walk out the door every day prepared to lay down their life. Sometimes... 
And, and I Googled this, never been said this way before. Sometimes the greatest love is not to sacrifice your life, but to live a life of sacrifice. And, uh, and, and that really rings and resonates. And so uh, uh, I, I've got an image that I use in my class a lot. It's a, it's a police officer called Christopher Amoroso coming down for the World Trade Center on 9-11. And his face is bone white. That's called vasoconstriction. The body shuts down the blood flow to the outer layer of the body. Her face is beet red. He's carrying this pregnant woman down. He's a giant of a man. And on second trip down, on the other side of the head, we know there's a pretty bad cut. He's been burned. He's exhausted. His eyes are rolling up in his head. He's in survival mode. The body shut down the blood flow and the forebrain shuts down. Your product of your instincts and your training. But the amazing thing about Christopher Amoroso, there's no rational thought of that man's head. We can tell you it's a scientific fact. But he's going to drop off that pregnant lady. And he's he's been burned. He's been cut. He's exhausted. And, and, and he's going up that building one more time. And people tried to stop him. People told him not to go. But like a mother who races in a burning building to save a beloved child, he he physically brushes him off and goes in the building a third time, and the building will fall. And Christopher Amoroso will not come home to his wife and baby tonight, never come home again. So why does one person go toward their death again and again while thousands are running away? And the answer is love. And, 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 and the greatest force in the universe is love, and God is love. All love emanates from him. And, and, and the amazing thing about Christopher Amoroso and how love, men don't die in combat for great things. They, they die in combat for their comrades. Audie Murphy was the most decorated American soldier in World War II. Is asked why he did it. The answer is very simple. They were killing my friends. And Audie Murphy loved his friends more than life itself. So in the heat of battle, friendship and, 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 and your comrades is what motivates you. Afterwards, Patriotism and faith and others are critical to be able to fully evolve and live with it afterwards. But what motivates men to lay down their life, men and women, is love. And so uh, uh, people, um, I've used that model uh, with permission, the photograph of Christopher Amoroso. Uh, and uh, for a decade after 9-11, somebody told me what the name Christopher means. Well, first of all, Amoroso, amor is love. Amoroso is the lover one who loves. And, and then somebody said, really study what that name Christopher means. A lot of us know about St. Christopher, and some people might know the name means Christ bearer, but very few people know the whole story. And it was the early days of the church. A man came to the Lord. He was a big man. Christopher Amoroso is a giant of a man. And his ministry was to carry people on his back across a river where people were perishing. And the story has it that he carried this child on his back. And as he came across the river, it was heavier and heavier. And he had the weight of the world on his back. He could barely crawl out the other bank. And he had Jesus on his back. And the, the name Christopher means Christ bearer. And the moral of the story is, as you bore that child on your back, you carried me. As you have done unto the least of these, you've done unto me. Christopher Amoroso, Christ bearer, the lover. Christopher Amoroso, Christ bearer, the lover, who will go back up that building one more time for just the remote possibility of saving one more life. 
Where was God on 9-11? I think wherever you see sacrificial love, through a lens darkly, we're looking into the face of God. And so here's my story. I, I'm 63 years old, 64 in just a couple of months. Uh, I've been on the road for 23 years. Uh, uh, waiting at home for me is my bride of 44 years, my high school sweetheart. She was, uh, she was 15 when I proposed her. I was 17. We, I tell people we are from Arkansas. <laughs> yeah. Two years later, she married a crazy army paratrooper. She's been in this ride with me for 44 years. This, uh, this July will be 45. I love her more than life itself. But for the last 23 years, I've been on the road truly over 200 nights a year, closing on 300, 200, 300 nights a year. I get home one, maybe two nights a week. Conjugal visit, clean underwear back in the road. Because the only one on earth more precious than my bride are my grandchildren. And we believe if we love our children, if we love our grandchildren, if we love our God, if we love our nation, we will walk out that door and give 100%. And the thing is, the worse it gets, the more determined you are to give it all you got. It's my prayer that I can do this for another 20 years. And, and, uh, and, and I think it's fully, fully possible to keep doing this for 20 years. And, and, but I say at the end of the book, it, God could, and, I, and I pray that all you listeners out there can catch one of my presentations. We're going to do these sheepdog spiritual warfare seminars and, uh, and, and, and be part of a sheepdog revival. And it's my prayer you can meet me. But I wrap up the book by saying God could take me home now that this book is done. God could take me home tomorrow. And I would have nothing to complain about. And if I get there first, I'll save you a place by the fire. Sounds awesome. Sounds awesome. I would love to have a place next to the fire. So that'd be uh, a great place to really launch into the different sections of this book. And, you know, guys, we're not going to go into super great detail on all these different sections because we do want to highly encourage you to pick this book up for yourselves. But in the first section of the book, uh, they're kind of broken down into three sections. You spend a lot of time going into the whole armor of God as described in Ephesians 6. And so just give us an idea as to why you spent so much time in so many missions in the book talking about the whole armor of God. You know, I, I really feel that when we look at the warrior, we talk about basic training, we talk about advanced training, we talk about combat experiences. But when you when you join the army, it starts on the first day where they issue your equipment. And, and then when you're issued that rifle, you're wristled that helmet, you're, you're, you're issued that tank, if you happen to be a tanker, you know, or that truck, if you're a trucker. Your, your job really revolves around your equipment. And so we, we, we've got to begin by issuing you the equipment. And, and of course, the belt of truth is, is where it all begins. And, uh, and, and the truth is God's word. And, and, and the belt is really, and in and, and, and the Old Testament talks about his belt shall be righteousness. The belt is righteousness. The belt is God's truth. And in and it, and its last hours, Jesus tied a, towel around his waist and used it as a towel as a belt and and washed the feet of his disciples as a, as a model of, of love the least shall be first and the first shall be last and and, and the towel is is humble service at, and and washing feet that you know we say if you want to be a mighty spiritual warrior bring a towel because you're coming to serve and your motivation needs to be love the towel is is God's truth and righteousness and and once you've accepted that, once you got the belt of truth on, then comes the, your feet shod with the readiness of the gospel of peace. Right off the bat, you should start 
having this desire to share with others what God has done in your life. From the very beginning, you're prepared to fight the fight, but you got to get the full equipment to really fight the fight effectively. And, and then we, we talk about the, you know, the shield of faith and the, and the helmet of salvation. And, and, and you know, today, construction workers wear hard hats. You know, in World War One, World War Two, they didn't wear armor anymore, but they wore a helmet. You know, we, we, construction workers, you know, soldiers, we can lose a limb, we can lose a lung, we can lose a big chunk of our intestines, we're still us. If we lose our brain, we're not us anymore. So, so that helmet of salvation, protecting the most important part, the world can tear you to pieces, but you can curl up inside that helmet of salvation and know that the important part, the eternal part, is going to be there for you. And that's, that's a critical dynamic. And then we wrap up, of course, with the sword is the first offensive weapon, really. But most people stop there and they missed a bit because the next step is praying ceaselessly in the word. And prayer is our radio. As a young infantry officer, you know, all, all an infantry soldier has is what he can carry on his back, which ain't very doggone much in this world. But with the radio, we can call for airstrikes and artillery and bring tons of explosives on the enemy. With the radio, we can call in medevac for our wounded and resupply. With the radio, we can coordinate operations with other units. And so we, we, we wrap up by spending a lot of time on prayer, and we spend a lot of prayer drills. And these are automatic reflexive drills that you should be doing. We, we give a story of how incredibly hard it is to use the radio in combat, to have precision artillery and, 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 and dynamics, where you had to use it, how you had to do it. A great story about it. Command Sergeant Major of mine in Vietnam. We've been in Vietnam for, for six years, six one-year tours in Vietnam. A lot of people were forced to do one year, drafted. Nobody was made to do more than one year. Very few had six tours in Vietnam. And, but he was in, uh, in towards the end of his fifth tour and calling in airstrikes and doing incredibly acts. He got a high medal for valor. He said it was just another day at the office after five years of combat, calling in airstrikes, doing all those precision works. Well, that's how good we want to be with prayer. That's how good we want to be with applying that. So I, I think the foundation of spiritual warfare has got to be that equipment. And then we move on from there to start applying it. But we wrap up that first section by outlining what your mission is. And, uh, and, 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 and I'll tell a little story that was in the book that'll make it come alive. You know, why are we here? You know, as a young infantry captain, I've, I've got 120 steely-eyed light infantry warriors but I have one of the craziest missions any infantryman probably ever had. Uh, and uh, the Pope was coming to speak at Laguna Seca Airfield. And 50,000 people would stand in the stadium and watch the Pope as he, as he said Mass. And, uh, and I'm not Catholic. Many of us weren't. But we were, we were deeply touched by this, this pilgrimage, this, this godly, faithful pilgrimage that were coming to hear the Pope say Mass. So they, they took all of the cars and parked them on the airfield of, of Fort Ord, California. And, uh, and it was our job to facilitate the parking and the security of those vehicles. And then they came back to their vehicles and got in the vehicles that late, you know, hours and hours later. But they, they, got, they parked their cars, they got on buses, and then they went to where they would hear the, the Pope and the buses were ferrying them there. And it was starting to get the crack of dawn and... Uh, and uh, uh, it's looking like there aren't going to be enough buses. And people are beginning to pack around the buses. They're concerned they'll get left out. They've traveled for who knows how long 
who knows how many miles they've got here. They're right up to the last step, and now there's not enough buses. And and, uh, and, and people begin to panic, and, and they begin to shove through. They're shoving the little old ladies aside. They're shoving the kids aside. And, and, and it was one of those incredible moments. And I've messed up so many things. We've all messed them up. But it's the moment when God gives us the right words and the right tool. I shove through the crowd and, and I stand up on the first step of the bus and turn around and face the crowd. And I said, people, people, remember why you're here. And whew, then I stopped. And, and they kind of hung their heads. And, and they shuffled back and let the little old ladies through. They let the children through. And I did that a couple more times, a couple more buses. I think at the end, it turned out there were enough. It was kind of close, but it all worked out. But, but we all got to remember why we're here. And, and God tells us, first and foremost, to love God with all your heart and all your might and all your soul. That all I have to give, you know, all my dog has to give me is his love. And that's all I ask, yeah? And then to let others know about him, the Great Commission. But to love yourself, uh, to love God and to love others as yourself. To love God and to love others as yourself. That, that's the core mission. To have graciousness and kindness and goodness to others. That's something I pray for every day. You know, old military officer, my first response is to bark at people. And, and, and the sheepdog needs to be gentle. We need to be kind. To have that spirit of, of graciousness and kindness. To I give up my first class seats all the time, finding some elderly handicapped person, say, this is your seat. You know, I get upgrades all the time because I'm a, at least a million mile or two million miles on one airline. And, 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 and to try to develop that love and graciousness, that generosity and sacrificial love for others. And, and, and to love God and love your, uh, others as yourself. And then to, to evangelize, to go ye therefore into all the world uh, and, and, and the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, bringing others to the knowledge of salvation. I ran an ROTC program, and we used to commission people at the end of the, their commissioning. And, and I told everybody, we're, we're all familiar with the Great Commission. It, a commission is a mission combined with authority. The Great Commission was to, was to bring others to knowledge and, and in, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. You are commissioned officers. Your mission is to support and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And your authority comes from the President of the United States. His name is on this piece of paper. So, so what greater authority could we have? We're given this commission, this authority, and this responsibility. And the next step is to do good deeds and to give the honor and glory to God. Our mechanism to bring people to the knowledge is these good deeds, to do good and never grow weary of doing good, and then we give because God doesn't need us to give him the honor. He doesn't need us to give the glory. He doesn't need us to give us these things, but he loves us. And he knows that if we seek the glory for ourselves, that's counterproductive. It's destructive to truly having a good life. If we give the honor and glory to him, then he gives us love and joy and peace and gentleness and all those other awesome things. So so why are we here? And, and, and we wrap up the... The, 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 the first third of the book with, with our mission. And, and, and we tell people it, it's like World War II. The thing to understand is in World War II, everybody was invested. They, they, they bought war bonds. They, they had food rationing. Kids bought war saving stamps and kids did scrap metal drives. And everybody was focused. Our entire nation was focused 
on the troops who were in the front lines, making sure they had the tools and they had the resources to, to, to win this war. And, and, and spiritual warfare is that same vast process in which everybody is involved. You see, in World War II, just the people on the front lines were in the fight and everybody else was supporters. But this is guerrilla warfare. We're in enemy territory. Every one of us can get on the radio and call straight to the Supreme Command. So this is decentralized warfare. The child, in an act of kindness, the loving mother, in a life of sacrifice, raising a godly family, uh, they can be as mighty victors in this war as, as, as the guy on the front lines, the pastor. We're all in the front lines of this war. Our daily actions are devoted towards winning that spiritual war. And we're all a part of a vast body. Of, of, of spiritual warriors. And, 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 and I give the example of, uh, of the power of prayer. And, and so, uh, you know, uh, on spiritual combat, it's not just to those who would physically be in the battle, it's to everybody. And we give the story, an old Baptist preacher told me of, uh, of, a, of a, one of the people who had been in this church at the time at uh, an American unit in the, in the Korean War launched an attack on an enemy hilltop position, and they were defeated. And driven back down to the base of the hill with just devastating enemy fire. Partway up the hill in a little depression is a wounded American soldier uh, uh, crying out in pain, calling for help, bleeding his life out. At the base of the hill, an American soldier looks at his watch and does nothing. Another soldier scrambles up the hill to rescue his friend is gunned down by enemy fire. That soldier looks at his watch again and does nothing. Another soldier scrambles up the hill to rescue his friend, is gunned down. Finally, young soldier looks at his watch a third time, takes a deep breath, and scrambles up the hill. Gasping with fear and exertion, the enemy fire all around him. He grabs his friend. They roll and scramble and down the hill. They bring him to the trenches at the base of the hill. The, the medics come to treat the wounded. He's sitting there gasping for air and exertion and, and fear. And the commander walks up and said, that is the bravest thing I've ever seen. He said, no, sir, it wasn't really. He said, what do you mean? Two men just died trying to rescue that man. How can you say it wasn't brave? He said, sir, you don't understand. I know my grandmother in Chicago goes to bed at nine o'clock on the nose every night and prays for me. He said, I'm waiting for nine o'clock Chicago time. And the moral of the story is that grandmother on her knees in prayer for her son can influence the tide of battle on a distant land. And no matter how old we go, no matter how weary we grow, we can still call out to God in prayer for our family, for our community, for our nation, and for, for our missionaries, all the things that we're called upon to pray. Uh, and, and, and my prayer life in recent years has been a critical part of it. My, my, my little dog that we, not so little, Labrador, our chocolate lab, her specialty is finding chocolate. And uh, <laughs> tell you, an old chocolate Hershey's Kiss, a bag of Hershey's Kisses, five years old, in the back closet. She'll find it, eat them, and poop little tinfoil balls for the next day, you know. But uh, but she and I, she's my little prayer buddy. So I go around my house, and I hold my house up in prayer, and I hold our business up in prayer. And we go to bed every night uh, holding hands, my wife and I, and we pray for each other. Because God's Word says there's special power when when two or more of you come to Him in prayer. And uh, and, and, and they, we really spend a lot of time in the middle of the book talking about prayer and, and prayer drills and these dynamics of using that in, in warfare and, and how we've got to be ready to respond reflexively with praise God and, 
and thank you, Jesus. You know, praise is a prayer. And thanks is, is, is gratitude is one of the most healthy things we can do. Give honor to God. Thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus. And, and we begin with that and move further on through, the, through that in, in a guidance on prayer. One, the cool thing about a lot of things that you said is some of that, if not most of that, should be done in some sort of a semblance of a community. And in Mission 6 in the book, you have this quote that I want to read here and then get your thoughts on it. Within your church, you can establish fellowship with other Christian spiritual warriors. Start a Bible study using this or any other great books on spiritual combat. Support each other in prayer, in Bible study, and in mutual counsel, support, and assistance. Working together with fellow believers, you can form a testudo, overlapping and interlocking your shields of faith in mutual support that can protect you, your loved ones, and your endeavors. So something that I talk about a lot on this podcast is the concept of a foxhole. And for us, what that means is when you look to your left and to your right, and the, you know what is hitting the fan, these are the guys that you want to be there. These aren't the guys that are just there. These aren't your family members that are bums. These aren't the dudes at work. These aren't the dudes that you you know went through rush with whenever you're joining a fraternity. These are the foxhole guys. These are your 2 a.m. guys that are going to be there for you to help you and get you through those situations. These are the guys that if they see you being rude to your wife in public, they're going to snatch you by you know the scruff of your shirt and say, look, man, you're not going to do that. You don't want to treat her that way. And if you keep doing that, you're going to have to deal with me. And you, know, you get to pick that a lot. And so I just wanted to, to get your ideas to kind of why you added that in there and why you think so many guys don't even attempt to create something like that. Well, first, it's a commandment to for us to gather. Uh, we're commanded not to be lone rangers, but to gather together in bands of, 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 uh, of, of warriors in enemy territory to uplift, support, sustain one another. And, uh, you know, to, to forsake not the gathering yourself together. It's a commandment. But the idea that testudo is really interesting. It means tortoise. And, and the Romans, it, it was kind of interesting the way they would fight. You know, and the Romans would say one barbarian could defeat one Roman every time. And 10 barbarians could defeat 10 Romans every time. But 100 barbarians will never defeat 100 Romans because their strength was in numbers and discipline and structure. And what they would do is the ones up front would hold the shield up front, kind of take a knee. The ones on the side will hold the shield to the side. Everybody else will put the shield overhead. And, and they were truly covered in every direction, like a turtle. And you could fire arrows at these guys and, and slings at these guys all day long until you got tired. And then they would pick up and go kick your tail. And, and that interlocking, overlapping layers of protection, it, 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 it's so important. The, the person in your foxhole, again, they have a prayer buddy and a prayer partner. You have godly men and women that you can associate with. Right? You know, that's all part of the process. But understand that, that it, ideally, that, uh, you know, we, we don't have to face the enemy one-on-one. We've got to have brothers and sisters beside us that will team together and hold their shields up together in the, the same way the Romans did, with the same spirit. You know, you can take down one of us, but you can't take down all of us. When we gather together, when we uplift each other, when we, we hold things together in prayer, uh, there, there's great power in that, and, and I believe it. I think we've seen it throughout history in our nation. When we come together as a nation and call out to God in prayer, amazing things can happen. Uh, and, and, uh, and, and that's that interlocking, overlapping layers of fire, the foxhole, the, you know, and, and, and the testudo, the shields held together. Uh, I, I appreciate bringing that out. It's, it's a critical part of our, of our growth. We've we got to understand that. 
it's absolutely critical and I can't harp on that enough. And that's why I encourage people to really go through that. And, and of all the questions I get asked whenever uh, the people that are listening to this podcast, when they reach out to me to ask me certain questions, almost all of it is centered around, well, how can I create a foxhole? What do I do? And I don't have that same group of guys that you do. And it takes a little bit more elbow grease than people realize, but it is incredibly, incredibly important. Well, I yeah. want to move on to some other subjects as well, because uh, you know, you've given us a lot of time and I want to make sure to be cognizant of that. But there is one thing to kind of wrap up and put a bow on on spiritual combat and it's this paragraph that i feel like if the guys listening to this if you were to read this every day before you you know left to go to the office or right before you walked in the house at the end of the day or maybe right before you went to bed i think it would do a great thing to kind of reset your brain and, and then we'll move on to the next thing but it's this quote here proclaim it now throughout the land I am a sheepdog under the authority of the great shepherd. He that is in me is far greater than he that is in the world. I am a child of the one true king, endowed by my creator with unalienable rights, empowered by my constitution as a free citizen, inspired by my forefathers to fight for this land I love. I am a sheepdog under the authority of the great shepherd, and this is as far as the minions of hell are going. And guys, if that's not a battle, exactly. If that's not a battle cry, if that doesn't make the hair on the back of your neck stand up, if that doesn't get you jacked up, then you're beyond help at this point. You might check your pulse because you might be dead. But guys, this is the last time I'll say it. And I'll certainly, I will, I'll probably say it again here in the outro, but you've got to go pick up a copy of On Spiritual Combat. The, the, the paper book or the physical book is this gorgeous bound book. So check it out. Don't worry. We'll make sure that the link is in the show notes. But I did want to move on to a different subject, which you did allude to and talk a little bit about earlier, but it's basically this epidemic or or I don't know exactly what you would call it of just violence and our youth and so you've put your money where your mouth is you've written a couple of books on this subject and uh, the first one was back in 1999 and it was stop teaching our kids to kill a call to action against TV movie and video game violence and then you followed that up in 2016 with assassination generation which you mentioned earlier which is video games aggression and the psychology of killing now one thing that you claim in some of these books and in some of your talks is that violent video games, especially the first person shooter video games. So your, your call of duties, uh, and you know, golden eye and things like that. You've dubbed those things, murder simulator games. And that you say, those are the main reasons behind school shootings. And you've been widely criticized for drawing that conclusion because most of the studies show, uh, th that there's not really a direct correlation or, or maybe that there is some correlation, but not causation behind that. But for you to just kind of make your own argument, because I don't want to put words in your mouth. Why do you think that violent video games like the ones that so millions, so many millions of people play and don't go out and commit these murders? Why is that the main reason for why we see this uptick in violence, especially school shootings? Sure. And, and understand, this is really important to wrap your mind around. And, and again, that brings us book to our, uh, assassination generation. Uh, for a juvenile to commit a multiple homicide in the school, multiple homicide by a juvenile in the school, it never happened in human history. Until 1975, a double homicide by a juvenile in Canada, Brampton, Canada. 79, double homicide by a juvenile in the school in, uh, in San Diego. So in the, in the 70s, we had two double homicides by a juvenile in the school, one in Canada, one in America. In the 1980s, two double homicides by a juvenile in the school, one in, in, uh, in uh, uh, Finland in America, and one in America. In the 1990s, it began to explode, and it just gets worse year after year after year. We have turned our world inside out to keep our schools safe. You talk to any school administrator, they'll tell you, you don't hear about the ones we catch. 
I believe today the Columbine killers would have been caught three times over. But the, the vice president, when I briefed him, I gave him a copy of my book. He homed right in on a, on, on a sentence right towards the front of, of, of my book, uh, Assassination Generation. To 5,000 years of recorded history, 500 years of gunpowder combat, 150 years of repeating firearms, and not one single time in the history of the world has any child committed a crime like this, and now they're everywhere. And we can track it with the early movies, with Showtime and the movies that were on and the, as the kids were beginning to watch these shows. And, uh, and then we, we can track it with the, uh, you know, with the other, the, the media violence is not just the video games, but the thing to understand about this, when, when I was a kid, I never buckled my seatbelt. Nobody buckled their seatbelt. He told my mom to buckle those five kids up. She said it wasn't possible. Became the law, got done. It's a good law. But nobody I know that had their seatbelt unbuckled died. So why should I buckle my kids up? Well, it's a risk factor. The thing to understand about the games in particular, and it's really important, is they are really raising a generation of vicious little bullies. Now, a healthy player, everybody that's listening to me at one time or another, even you ladies, you probably played toy gun. Said bang, bang, and got you. No, you didn't. Oh, sure. Okay. So you smack him with your cap gun. It leaves a mark, and he cries. Everybody gather around the hurt kid, try to convince him not to tell mom. Somebody gets hurt, the play stops. A basketball game, a football game. Now, players gets hurt, the fans go silent, and the play stops. In the video game, you blow your playmates' heads off. They bleed, and they writhe, and they beg for mercy. Does the play stop? You get points. It's pathological play. It's dysfunctional play. And the major thing that's coming out of this is bullying. The bullying in our schools is almost impossible to comprehend. The one thing that killers all have in common is, is A, they have every one of them have immersed themselves in these violent video games without fail. Every one of them, it's a key factor, and they've been viciously bullied. And that combination is toxic. The bullying, you say, I was bullied when I was a kid. It can't be worse than that. It's worse. Are the mass murders in the school worse than we were kids? Every couple of years, we rack up a new record body count in our schools. Meanwhile, not a single kid has been killed by school fire in half a century. So uh, we got to understand all the things we've done. And yet still, every couple of years, a new record body count. And this is not right. Mexico is unglued, a level of violence we've never seen. Latin America, uh, almost across the board, is worse than Mexico. Fleeing to Mexico by the millions, they're fleeing to us. Uh, Europe is out of control. They won't even let us know what the murder rate is for the last uh, They won't let people know what the crime rate is for the last decade and a half because they don't want us to know. If it was better, they'd be telling us. We're in the middle of a worldwide epidemic of violence. What is new? This epidemic of sleep deprivation combined with these things. And, and we got the brain scan studies, assassination generation. We showed the brain scan studies. Violent visual imagery inflicted upon children puts their body in a fight or flight mode. Adults can do whatever they want. Adults can handle this stuff. It's violent visual imagery inflicted upon children. And there are so many things adults can do, but kids can't. You know, alcohol, tobacco, sex, automobiles, firearms. There are so many things adults can do, but kids can't. And we've been to realize violent visual imagery inflicted upon children is child abuse. And you know, in, 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 in Psalms, God says, it says, it says that God hates lovers of violence. The, the, the idea that God hates something should, should be really big to us. And Psalm 11 says God hates lovers of violence. Do we love that violent video game? Do we love that violent movie so much that we can't protect our children from it? There are things adults can do, but kids can't. 
And, and it starts with violent visual imagery inflicted upon children. The rating system for those movies is a hard and fast line. The rating system for the video games is a hard and fast line that we need to strongly support. And, 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 we, and it's the minimal. Our standard should be higher than the standard that puts out these games. But their video game rating system should be the absolute minimum. They tell the kid, this is an M-rated game. The people who played, made the game said, you should not play that game until you're 17. And by the way, M stands for mature. I'm mature, Dad. You told me I'm mature. Every kid wants to be mature. It's a mature game. I can play a mature game. They took the worst games and gave it the most desirable possible term, mature. And then they fought all the way to the Supreme Court to sell any game to any child at any age. And that's my book, Assassination Generation. Piece of history, they want to go away. The state of California, home of Hollywood, home of Silicon Valley, overwhelmingly voted to regulate children's access to violent video games. Most adult gamers have no problem with that. And, 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 and Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger signed the bill. He said, I make violent movies. I protect my kid from violent movies. And especially the violent video games, we need to protect our kids. You know, it, when you made it the law, my, my mom started buckling the grandbabies up. It was the law. And so the video game industry fought all the way to the Supreme Court to sell any game to any kid at any age. And, 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 and so that's what it's about. And in the book, Assassination Generation, we go in far more detail on that to understand what's happening. The brain scan studies, violent visual imagery inflicted upon kids. We can detox that kid two or three days away from TV, movie, and video games. Uh, a major study of Stanford Med School, we detox an entire K through 12 school turn off TV, movie, and video games for 10 days in an entire school, cut violence in half, cut bullying in half, and raise test scores double digits just by detoxing these kids for 10 days. And again, we, we mentioned that briefly in, assassina or in, in on, on Spiritual Combat. Please read Assassination Generation all the way through to give you far more information. There's so many urban myths out there like, you know, they're all on psychotropic drugs. No, they weren't. You know, the, the FBI study, Dr. Jim McGee, 19 school killers, two, maybe three were prescribed antidepressants. God himself couldn't get access to the medical record in one case. How do people claim to know that? And, and, and the one of the two, maybe three cases that were prescribed antidepressants, one of the Columbine killers said, I must stop the drug to build my rage. You know, the, the, the drugs are not the factor, the new factor out there. The two factors they all have in common They've all been bullied and they've been told for a lifetime the right response will bully. A real man will kill that bully. A real man will shoot him and kill him and that'll pay him back and they'll be sorry. And the video games have made it a condition reflex when they slam into that resistance against killing. They pull that trigger just like our troops in Korea and Vietnam in modern wars pulled the trigger because they were conditioned through training. We know how to teach healthy soldiers to shoot under authority, under discipline, the fact that the same thing's being done indiscriminately to our children should should horrify us. So great question. I appreciate it. It's, it lies at the core of so many dynamics. It's far more complex. And, and I wrote the whole book on it that hopefully can kind of lay the foundation that we can build on a piece of history that they want to go away. Don't let it go away. Read the book. Pass the word along. Uh, it's a critical part of our of our spiritual battle to be informed to this level. 
Well, I appreciate you going into detail on the psychotropic drug part, because I've certainly heard that before, that all these kids were on psychotropics and it's, it sounds good enough, but then you don't even think about that next logical step, which is, well, how do they know that? How are they able to get access to these sealed files? But as a follow-up to that, to kind of maybe even wrap up that section about the kind of the youth and violence, it seems like a lot of schools and a lot of school systems and also a lot of churches, they don't seem to take safety that seriously. They, they say they do, at least outwardly. They're like, oh, there's nothing more important than keeping the people on our campus or the people in the pews safe, but then they don't seem to do any of the things in order to take care of that. And in the church setting, you see a lot of people that just say, oh, well, we're just going to rely on, on faith and on God to protect us. And at the same time, as you've pointed out before, which I think is pretty hilarious, they don't take the fire extinguishers out. They don't take out the sprinkler systems. You know, like the, there are still things they do to rely on safety that have essentially nothing to do with God. God inter- interceding. So for you and from your perspective, what are some things that schools and campuses and certainly churches can do to actually ensure that they are actually doing it right, that they are protecting the people that are in there at the times when they're in business or when they're in session or whenever, you know, worship is going on? Well, let's lay a foundation first that uh, the spiritual part of it is important. You need to have a prayer ministry. You need to have people praying for their safety. Uh, our Sheepdog House of Worship security team training was a major house of worship in uh, in Montana. They had a U.S. senator in their congregation, several federal judges. Uh, they had took security very seriously. And they had security, armed security. We'll talk about that in a minute. They had armed security positioned. Uh, and they had an armed response team ready to punch out. They had cameras and monitors. And they also had several people who, who these are people who could never pick up a gun but they were praying for the safety of the congregation as they came, as they left throughout that whole process. And, and, and have somebody on your team with, tell everybody, somebody on team whose job it is, put their back to the wall, keep their eyes open, but immediately go into prayer. And, and, uh, and that's powerful. But people say, well, well, don't you think God will protect you? Well, we don't need armed security. God will protect us. Don't you have enough faith? I say, well, what do you need that fire exit sign? What do you need that fire extinguisher? Throw that fire exit sign away. Throw away that fire extinguisher. Show us your faith. God will protect you from fire. That ain't how it works. You know darn well, God gave you the brains and the tools to protect yourself from fire. You don't use those things and people die. Don't you blame God? And God gave you the brains and the tools to protect yourself from violence. And he put you in a nation where you have the right to carry the tools to protect people. You know, any, any nation on the planet, if you're a politician, if you're rich, you've got armed security. But the peons and the peasants will never have that right. In America, I am my family's secret service. My family has the same right to security the president does. And, and, and that's the nation I want to fight for and the nation I want to preserve for my grandchildren to have that right. And, and, and so if you don't tap into those resources and bad things happen, don't, don't blame God. But, you know, what I tell people is, so, you know, we say establish a standard. Somebody comes to you and says, I got my uh, concealed care permit. I want to be part of the security team. I said, good for you. Uh, we honor you. This is a ministry. There are people who come to your house of worship who would not ever want to come, but they were called to be sheepdogs to protect. But set a standard. You know, you, you let them carry their guns, but to be part of the team, set a standard. We're going to be at the range next week. Let's see how you shoot. If you don't shoot up to standard, we'll get you up to standard. And let's lay a foundation. We've got to move back to the schools to understand what this is doing for us. There has never been a multiple homicide in a school when there was an armed cop present in the building. 
Now, in Columbine, the cop never got in the building. Parkland, cop never got in the building. And, and there have been some solo homicides that were stopped by the cop. But none of these mass murders have happened in a school with armed cop present in the building. And, uh, and, uh, I, and there's never been a homicide period that I can find in a school that had armed educators. And we've got armed educators across America. The thing that's not being reported is insane. Ever since Columbine across Utah, they've been, they've been arming very quietly. It's completely decentralized. How many schools in Utah have armed educators? We don't know. Nobody knows. It's completely decentralized. They believe that there's somebody in every, every school district ought to be carrying a gun. And, and if you're not qualified, we'll get you qualified. But in, in Ohio, uh, 80% of all counties in Ohio have some armed educators. Shouldn't we know that? Isn't that a piece? And they've had 100% success. Ohio has a program called FASTER, Firearms uh, Safety Training, uh, uh, FASTER, Firearms uh, and uh, 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 Faculty and Staff train, uh, Training for Emergency Response, FASTER, Faculty and Staff Training for Emergency Response. And what it is, is it doesn't stop the bleed, but it also trains shooting responses and firearms responses. And the thing to understand with this is you have to be nominated by your fellow educators right up front to come to the class. It's a three-day class, and the marksmanship standard is higher than the standard for law enforcement. You're not just going to walk in the door and shoot at that level. you got to be good ahead of time. you got to have skills ahead of time. you got to be willing to work ahead of time on your own. And, and, and a reporter from the London Times came and took one of the classes. He never held a gun in his life, and they, they worked him through it, and they understood, you understand, you're not going to hit the level we demand of these people in just a three-day class. A lot of training goes into it. Background skills goes into it. It's higher than the level for law enforcement. And he wrote in the London Times, I never thought I would say this, but if this is the kind of training people are getting, I support having armed indicators. Now, did that get in the national media? No. Did it get anywhere? No. The, the things that are not being reported are insane. About half of all schools in Texas have some armed educators. We see it across Florida. We're seeing it in other places. Well, we don't even know. It's all so decentralized. But when you hear about school, guns in the school, they act like it's some weird, goofy idea. Having cops in the school is good, but it's hard to afford cops year after year after year. It's hard to sustain that. Well, nothing's happened for a decade. What do we need a cop there for? You know, it's like, well, what do we need a fire receiver for? We never used it. You know, for the last 50 years, no, no kid has been killed by school fire. But the thing to understand is that to sustain the system, it, it, having the educators do it is far, far better. The statistics tell us, and I can't you know, think if there was an exception, we'd have heard about it. The media would have been talking about it, that, uh, that, that we've never had a homicide in a school with armed educators. It could happen any day. It's not perfect, but it's one of the best tools we have. And essentially, it costs nothing. The, the faster training, it's the educator's gun, it's the educator's ammo, it's the educator's time. Uh, and and, uh, and, and it, it essentially costs nothing. It is the one sustainable thing that we can be doing. And we think that it is the one sustainable thing that we should be doing in our houses of worship. We recently saw a tragic incident in Texas where a man opened fire. Several deer sheepdogs were, tried to stop it, were stopped. I were, were killed, but it was a sheepdog. We fired one shot, headshot. It was over. Now, that man is an American hero. And he was a man that not only did he train at a range, he owned a range. He was responsible for training. He sold himself up to that level. His draw was fast. His shot was sure. And a mass murder stopped right there, one headshot. And, and that's the standard that we want. You know, and if, if, if that man had been stopped uh, 
before anybody else was lost, we'd been far less likely to even heard about it. I had the honor to work with uh, and speak with uh, with the man who stopped the mass murder, 26 dead in Sutherland Springs Baptist Church. Uh, he heard gunshots in the church just a couple of doors down from his house. His rifle, his AR had been stolen, so he kept his rifle in a safe now, and he had to get into the safe, and he didn't have a loaded magazine. Every gunshot, people are dying. These are his friends dying. He's loading a magazine. How, how many rounds are enough? When do you stop loading the magazine, put it in the rifle, and he runs out in a, on a gravel road in his stocking feet and opens fire at this guy. He had trained for this, for body armor defeat drills, headshot, uh, 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 side shot, hip shot, and he does a, uh, he's firing at this guy, and, and, and the guy runs off. He's hit, he's hit him at least once, as I recall. And gets in his vehicle and takes off. Now, here's a, a stranger drives past in a pickup truck. And one Texan waves down the truck with a rifle in his hand, said, that man just shot up a bunch of people in the church. We need to go get him. So two of us in a pickup truck chase after him. Well, and they, they chase after this guy, and uh, he's been wounded. He ultimately stops his vehicle, and, uh, and he kills himself. But they're, 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 they're stopped, and they're, he's with the rifle over the hood of this pickup truck with his... With his uh, his, his, uh, his rifle sighted in on this vehicle full of this mass murderer. And the police stop and the police get in their PA and said, drop the weapon. You drop the weapon. He puts the weapon down and steps away. No, not you. <laughs> you pick up your weapon. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what a beautiful story. And the only thing that stopped the man, a bad man with a gun was a good man with a gun. And we see it over and over again. The only thing that's going to truly stop a bad man with a gun is a good man with a gun. And the ultimate achievement is the crime that didn't happen because they know there's somebody they're going to shoot back. That's why these kids are not committing mass murders in schools with armed educators. They, 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 it's a deterrent, the crime that didn't happen, the ultimate achievement. It, and, and praise God that we live in a nation where we have the right to do that and fight with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul to sustain a nation where we have that right. That's amazing. And I, I love your perspective on that. And again, I just, I want people to take this more seriously. I want people to take the idea of being a sheepdog within a school system or within a church system a lot more seriously. One thing I want to talk to you about as well, and then we'll, we'll start working our way towards the end here, is with this ministry, we talk about spiritual, mental, and physical resilience all the time. And we're very specific about using the word resilience and not strength, because strength is something that can wane over time. You do a you know a personal best deadlift today. Well, you're probably not going to be able to hit that same number tomorrow. You know you ran your personal best mile today. You're probably not going to be able to run that 20 years from now. And but resilience is that ability to bounce back. And typically, people can very easily get through the idea of that physically. But then with spiritual and mental resilience, they they can't really wrap their minds around that. No pun intended. But for you, why is resilience so important because that's kind of a through point for a lot of the things that you've produced is the ability to be resilient. Yeah. And that's my classes to military and law enforcement is a, is about resiliency. And, and the thing to understand it, you know, why can they have a fire extinguisher and yet preparing for physical violence is unthinkable. There really is something to understand here that, that when it's a human being who inflicts the trauma, the psychological trauma is far more harmful. You know, think about these two scenarios. A tornado hits a house while you're gone, puts your family in the hospital. How do you feel about that? Oh, thank God they're alive. Scenario two, a gang breaks in the house while you're gone and systematically beats your family into a hospital stay. How do you feel about that one? There's all the difference in the world. And that's why when the human being comes to commit this violence, not only 
is it something we haven't prepared for? Not only is it a body count, but it's so psychologically devastating. When your little house of cards collapses on, you realize there is evil in the world and we got to prepare to face that evil. And, and so when, when, when we talk about this, I understand how psychologically destructive it is. And you know, I'm, I'm 63. I, I grew up in the martial arts. I, I, I spent a lot of time in the army. I'm still in fairly good shape, but I, I'm not, I, I, I'm not set to do a, a, a fist fight anymore. I'm, my, I'm an old man and, and my weapon is a gun. You know, and we'll grow old and we might grow fat, but we can still be one hell of a shot. And uh, and uh, I, I love the martial art of the firearm. I grew up in the martial arts. I love the dojo. I love the structure. I turned 18. I enlisted in the army and my martial art became the rifle and the pistol. And I heard for years about the martial art of the firearm. Hojutsu, H-O-J-U-T-S-U.com. Hotel Oscar Juliet Uniform Tango Sierra Uniform.com. Hojutsu. The martial art of the firearm. I heard about it for years. Uh, that the, the founder is a fellow Army Ranger. It just uh, in the early, right at the very end of, of Vietnam, just a few years older than me. Uh, he, uh, the most decorated Alaska State Trooper, high-level martial artist. Uh, he ran their their training academy and uh, and a and high-level martial artist. Had multiple skills. One of uh, a few dozen grandmaster pistol shots on the planet. And he resurrected the Japanese art of the firearm. And it's brilliant. You know, there's 20 million Americans in the martial arts, only a couple of thousand actively compete. But the idea of striving for the next belt, of striving against a standard, that's something Americans can wrap their mind around. I thought I was good. I'm a gun sight, front sight grad, good little competitive shooting, little military training. And I showed up the first three-day weekend and barely made a brown belt by my skin and my belt. You're shooting for your belt. There's one kata at the black belt level. It's a brilliant kata that very critical to transition for armed unarmed fire uh, uh, and, and weapons, you know, three different weapons uh, security and weapons takeaway tools. And, uh, and I trained for two years. I knew the shots I was missing and, uh, and, uh, and I'm at my best today. I made my black belt. I do some teaching, but over 20 Hujitsu practitioners been in real world gunfights and they've got over 98% hit rate and nobody else, any other training mechanism on the planet can, can, can hold that up as a standard. Uh, uh, it's uh, it, it's good stuff. It's a discipline. It's the structure. I recommend it. Just remember this. Uh, we'll grow old and we'll grow fat. But we can still be a mighty prayer warrior and we can still be a good shot. You know, I, I enlisted in the Army in 1974. My dad was a cop. And every police department had a pistol team. And I tell my cops, all, all those pistol trophies are gone. But at, at the 1970s, the World War II vets were still running the show. And, and those veterans of World War II knew that we'll grow old and we'll grow fat, but the thing we honor above all else is marksmanship. And they had that team. They didn't have SWAT teams back then, but they honored that one factor. So I ask all of you, don't be content just to have the weapon. Seek the training. Make it a lifelong process to bring yourself to deeper levels of training. Uh, it, I tell people, if you choose not to carry a gun, that's okay. Think about pepper spray. Think about other things you can be doing. Our, uh, our home church has armed security. Our pastor is a retired Air Force nuke security guy. He's a great sheepdog, and we, he, we shoot at the range together with him and other sheepdogs. And, uh, but uh, at, uh, we have a daycare there, and we have a Sunday school during Sunday school, and all of them have pepper spray. And the insurance company said, great idea. Just be sure you give them a class and document the class. 
And, and, and we did that. And, and, and so you can do that. You know, I mean, the, the little lady running your daycare, the little lady running your, and either way, we fear that daycare maskers may be one of the things coming. We see it around the planet. School bus maskers, daycare maskers, God forbid. We, we think it's coming. It's happening around the world. It's just a matter of time until it comes here. Don't let it happen in your daycare, in your school bus. But uh, uh, the idea of having that daycare worker ha at least having pepper spray, having the doors locked, be ready to compartmentalize, apply all the lessons we've applied to the schools and think about doing that with our daycares and our nurseries as well. A and it begins with just pepper spray or just keeping the doors locked. It's simple things that we can be doing right now. Uh, and, and be able to slam that door and boom, it's locked and you're secured. Whether it's your Sunday school class, whether it's your daycare uh, nursery, slam the door, boom, it's locked that fast. The, the, the tragedy and, and the, uh, the two classes full of first graders slaughtered in, uh, in, uh, in, in Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut. Uh, they were sued and the two things they were sued for was number one, there was no way to lock the door from the inside. Well, there is a way, have the door locked all the time, slam the door, boom, it's secured. Two classrooms of first graders would be alive today if they'd have been able to secure the classroom from the inside. And number two, no laminate film on the glass. The door was, the front door was locked. All he did was shoot out the glass and step in. Those are things we can do. Go to the 3M guys, get that laminate film on, on the glass, on the door, beside the door. You, you can shoot a, a, a bullet through it, but you're not gonna get through it anytime fast. It doesn't look good to lock a door when there's glass there. And be ready to have those, individual doors slam and lock shut that fast, securable from the inside or locked all the time and propped open, slam the door, boom, we're secure. Just simple things we can be doing it. At the upper end of the scale, of course, is 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 carrying the weapon and being trained with a weapon. I've mean, just realized there's many different ways we can address this. Our spouse may not be ready, but she can start carrying pepper spray and come further up that scale. And, and my wife is a heck of a good shot, but uh, but she can't carry a gun everywhere. We have a gun, gun box in the car. We have a gun box, uh, uh, in, uh, in next to her bed. And, uh, and, and so we, 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 we develop, we, we progress, we come stronger, but as we grow older, we become deeper and stronger in our faith and we can still be a heck of a good shot. Absolutely. Well, I got one question for you before we get to our last little lightning round uh, era. And this is a kind of a different question. And I'm not sure it's one that you get asked a lot, but it is special to me because I'm an Oklahoma native. But you were actually an expert witness in the prosecution team of the United States versus Timothy McVeigh. And so that was the Oklahoma City bombing that killed 171 people. I know people like to cite the number 168, but there were three pregnant yeah. women that were in that building as well. So 171 souls were lost that day. So just real quickly, um, and I know it's a huge case and there's a lot to do with it and we're not here to rehash the entirety of the case. I think everyone's pretty familiar with it. But what was it like for you being in a courtroom and being so close to a person that can, I guess, most easily be described as pure evil? Evil. But you know what? Here's the story behind that one. Uh, the defense team for McVeigh, the, the, I, I try to never say the name of the killer. The defense team for the killer uh, came to me in my military job and said, we have a, a, a we, we asked who it was that knew about killing. You wrote the book on killing. We want you to testify in court. And we got a, a judge's order to give out like $100 an hour, which is at that time, this outrageous amount of money, still outrageous. Uh, maybe it was $100 an hour. We got a judge's order. They can't stop you to come and testify how the military trained McVeigh to be a killer. And I said, it doesn't work that way. Uh, you know, I mean, discipline comes with the, with the business. And the, the fact is that those who are trained 
are far less likely. They have structure and discipline. I said, uh, and I, I'm not going to support you in any way, shape, or form. It's, it, and it, the, the, the data actually goes the other way, the, the, the opposite. They said, well, if you don't help us, this guy might die. We don't often admit this, but uh, you know, we, we know he's guilty, and he admits he's guilty. All we want to do is try to save his life. And, and they said, if you don't help us, he might die. And I laughed. I couldn't help it. I mean, I just laughed. And, and what I was thinking was, I'll, I'll push the button myself. You know? Yeah, <laughs> I, right. I'd be happy. It would be a joyful day in my life. And, and, I, and I told them no. So what happened was somehow the prosecution team got the word that defense is going to go this way. And they asked the same question. Well, who's the expert? Well, Grossman wrote the book. So they came to me and put me on TDY orders. Didn't, didn't, <laughs> I didn't make a dime. But, uh, and and, I, and they, I never went to court. What the prosecutor, what prosecutor said, look, we got Grossman standing by. If you try to go in this direction, you know darn well he's going to shoot you down. And I never had to go to court. I was just kind of on board to shoot them down. And, and I feel very good about that. I feel like it's, a, you know, one of those achievements in life. Uh, uh, that, that, you know, you help defeat evil. It's an act of unspeakable evil. And, and, and we, we've, we've got to be prepared to defeat evil from, from every perspective, from every direction that it comes from. We manifest love. And, you know, we, one, one other thing, that, you know, the whole coronavirus thing, while we're in masks now, people don't realize how stressful it is to wear a mask for an extended period of time. When, when I was in the Army, we would wear our, our gas mask, our, our protective mask, for days. And we'd have to get used to it. And, uh, and I remember one time I was sitting up on a hillside as a company commander, a young captain, the battalion chaplain's beside me. And on your gas mask, you got a little emitter device where your voice is supposed to come through. And you put the, 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 uh, uh, the, the microphone of, of, your, of, your, of your radio right against that, and you talk into it. Now, I'm talking calmly, and, and, and an immediate superior to me, a major, the battalion S3, said, you're not wearing your mask. I said, yes, I am. I've got it right against the voice emitter. What you're hearing come over there is not the mask, it's your stress. And if you just relaxed, you can come across radio sound the same way. I got the chaplain right here. They'll verify you, I got my mask off. But even trained soldiers who've been doing this for years, when they go to speak with that mask on, that stress is there. You can hear it in their voice. It's very hard to prevent it. People don't understand how, how, how stressful it is to wear a mask. And then you don't see smiles. You don't see their faces. This is terribly, terribly counterproductive for interaction dynamics, for, for, for stress. And, and just understand that, that these, are, these are stressful times and people are not working. Bad things are happening across the board. Uh, I think we're, we're seeing a real dynamic in which the, uh, the, the politicians who, who say nobody should die. You know, if we just took everybody's car, 40,000 people a year die from traffic deaths. If we just said no cars, we'd save 40,000 lives a year. But Americans will not accept that. We, we've got to draw the line somewhere. And Americans say we've got to draw the line on that. But in the meanwhile, we need our sheepdogs out there. And you should let God's love shine through you and your daily interaction. My wife and I just went to the grocery store. And everybody would pass said, hey, neighbor, how are you doing? I like to hear that name. Neighbor, huh? who's that? going to be catching by surprise. The friendly voice, hey, neighbor, how are you doing? Because we're all neighbors right now. We're standing. I do it on planes all the time, you know. And uh, and and try to just just friendliness, kindness, courtesy, God's love shine through everything that you do. 
if they know you and they know that you're a Christian, the first and foremost thing you should be doing for them is manifesting God's love, your kindness, your generosity, love God and love others as yourself. And have that kindness to, out to everybody. Strive for it, pray for it, work for it. What do we need the most? We need love and we need God to shine out through us. And that love will motivate us to train and motivate us to prepare uh, for these violent times. And, 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 and we need God in our lives. We need God in our nation. And God is love. All love emanates from him. We need that love. Now and the worse it gets, the more we need it. Amen, amen, and amen. And Dave, we've made it all the way to the end here. And at the end of our interviews, when we have especially thoughtful guests, we like to do this last little section called, what would you say to someone that said? And so, so the thing about this is I'm going to say that beginning, and then I'm going to give you a different statement. And these statements may just be random, huge topics. They might be critiques. They might be any number of things. But the rules are, is with each one of these, you get 30 seconds maximum to answer these. So it's just the nuts and bolts, meat and potatoes for the answer. So you up to it? Okay, let's do it. First one here. What would you say to someone that said there certainly are atheists in foxholes? There are, but they're darn rare. It was Plato who said it first. Plato said there are very few atheists so fixed in their belief that faced with the, uh, with the life and death issue, they don't call upon a higher power. And I think there's a degree of truth in that. At some level, all of us got to believe there's something more. And you know, uh, it, it's important to let go of the things in life you can't control. And to do that, you got to have a higher power to give it to. All right, next one here. What would you say to someone that said, if we get rid of all the guns, then we get rid of all the gun violence? How's that working out for Mexico? <laughs> you don't really need to say much more than that. that. That's a pretty darn good example. We'll go ahead and go to the next one. Here we go. What would you say to someone that said, what does Dave Grossman know about killing? He's never even been in battle and he's never killed anyone. Yeah. You know, my war was a cold war. How could we have had 500 years of gunpowder combat and not let people know that the shots get muted in combat. You know, it, it, early on when I did this, the Vietnam veterans told me all of these examples, all of this data, it took somebody who was intellectually separated from it to be able to get this info out. God's had his hand on it every step of the way. Nobody else has ever been able to do it. And I think it was part of the equation that made it possible. All right, excellent answer. Next question here. What would you say to someone that said, People are inherently good. How's that working out for Mexico? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to force you to give me a little bit more than that on this one. Give yeah. me a little more. Yeah, look around the planet. Look at evil. And you know, the crazy part is, is people can believe in the presence of evil, but they don't believe in the presence of good. And that destroys them. If you believe there's evil and how can you deny it, then you've got to be prepared to fight that evil with a superior force of good. Otherwise, you're doomed. Right. And you'll get a little bit of extra time with the next question, because here it is. What would you say to someone that said there is no such thing as evil? Yeah. Evil is 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 defined by God. And if there's a God, there is evil. And I believe that God's word is is that is the dominating factor. If you don't believe in evil, then you don't believe in God's word and you're not following him. And the, and the root dynamic here is not so much that you don't believe in evil as that you don't believe in God. And you don't believe in a higher power and a higher authority. There is evil in the world and they will come for you and they will come for your loved ones. We are fighting for the survival of our civilization. And, you know, they say a conservative is a liberal that hasn't been mugged yet. Or a, a liberal is a conservative that hasn't been mugged yet. 
uh, <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and I pray that, uh, that that individual doesn't need to be brought to the awareness of evil the hard way. You can come to the knowledge of evil by reading the paper every day. Or you can come to the knowledge of evil by coming and smacking you in the face in your own world by doing horrible deeds. And I pray that person doesn't have to find it the hard way. Find it the easy way and uh, and prepare for it. All right. Next one here. What would you say to someone that said, I don't need to read the Bible. I'm already saved. And and once we're saved and truly saved, uh, then then neither life nor death nor any other power can separate us from, from the love of God. But if you truly love God, and, and that's what it's all about is relationship with God. Then you will seek deeper knowledge. You will seek his word. You will try to dive deeper into him. And, and salvation is, is a series of steps. The first step to accept salvation, but you can be a baby Christian that never goes any further. We want to be mighty warriors who prepared to bring others to the knowledge and, to, and to, to be triumphant as God wishes us. The blessing that God gives to us is love and joy and peace, perfect love and, 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 and perfect joy. And, and perfect peace in our lives. And you're missing out on all of the beautiful things about being a Christian if you don't dig any deeper into the faith. Right, well, here we go. Next lightning round question here. What would you say to someone that said, pastors don't need to talk about the Lion of Judah. The Lamb of God is just fine. You know, it's like saying we don't have to talk about the Old Testament. It's leaving out half of God. The the, the idea that that we we leave out God as a warrior is 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 mindless and, and and it's not complete we've got to take the whole bible we've got to take all the aspects of it the whole base of god god loves and god is a warrior love always protects ephesians tells us love always protects if you're not focused on that then then your love is not complete all right love that answer here's the next one here what would you say to someone that said i don't remember any of the old timers complaining about ptsd modern soldiers are just soft yeah and again remember we're, we're looking about five percent of the troops in this war getting ptsd and we, it was quite a bit higher in vietnam because of the way they were treated but we can look throughout history and see it in the in the civil war it's called nostalgia and and there was a name for it and and we saw it in world war one they called it shell shock and then in World War II, we began to get a deeper understanding of what was happening. And it was concussion for some, but it was psychological for others. Uh, you're denying the entire body of, uh, of military history and psychology to say that. Many of them did have troubles, but the vast majority were stronger for the experience. And the vast majority of this war will be stronger. New greatest generation rising up. But those who do have problems, we can help. We're darn good at treating PTSD. and need to let those who have a problem get help and have faith that help can help. All right, Dave, we've got three questions left and they are connected to one another. So here we go. What would you say to someone that said, I don't need to learn how to shoot or fight. I don't need to protect myself. That's what cops are paid to do. You know, the the Supreme Court has said you can't sue the police department for not being there. And and the the, the police chief of Detroit said, look, we're not going to be there for you at the moment of truth. You got to get a gun. It's the first major city mayor, uh, police chief to talk like this. Is you need to get a gun. You need to train yourself. We will not always be there. This is what the Second Amendment was about. One of the things that's going to come out of this whole COVID quarantine is the realization that the government can't always protect you. And food won't always be there on the shelves. I got a book coming out in about a year called On Hunting. And we're seeing a lot more people turning to hunting. And, and the intersection between faith and hunting is very great. 
But the idea that you can count on somebody else to provide your food and somebody else to provide your, uh, your safety uh, at the moment of truth, when that breaks down, it can be a very frightening and, and tragic event, and you will be destroyed not just physically but psychologically by right. the counterproductive and, 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 and self-denial of, of that statement. All right. Second to last question here. What would you say to someone that said, I don't need to learn how to shoot or fight. I don't need to protect myself. Whatever happens, happens. Well, if you're content, whatever happens to your loved ones happens. If you're content to let your loved ones suffer from your lack of action, then I would submit to you that maybe you don't truly love them. Love always protects. We keep coming back to that word, that most dynamic and powerful of all aspects. If you truly love them and you truly understand that bad things that happen over the paper every day and tell me it can't happen. If you have a fire extinguisher and a fire fire exit sign in your house of business, in your business, then you need to accept violence in the same way. And your failure to prepare can cause you even greater psychological harm than a tornado fire could happen because a person came to do it and you denied that could ever happen. All right. Last question of the day. Here we go. What would you say to someone that said, I don't need to learn how to shoot or fight. I don't need to protect myself. God is my protector. God will take your soul and he will protect you without a doubt. But in the meanwhile, your relationship with God and your love. And we're told, first of all, we love God and love others as yourself. That is, that is the cornerstone of what we're supposed to do. And if we love always protects. And if, 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 you're, if you, God will preserve you. But if you're not in prayer and if you're not actively involved to, to protect others, then your faith is only partial and, and, and what God has asked you to do and the love that you're told to present to the world is not, is not the full sacrificial love that, that we need to have. We set those things aside and we prepare ourselves physically and psychologically to be the sheepdog and to rest one day at the, at the feet of the great shepherd and hear those words, well done, the good and faithful servant. And for those who have not fully prepared themselves, it may be that uh, we're still saved, but, but we maybe we didn't make that great shepherd as proud of us as we wish we could. Well, that is as great a place to end as I could possibly imagine. But uh, that's all for me. We, we've gone to all, all kinds of different links in this conversation. But is there anything else you want to get off your chest? No, my brother. Just God bless and stay safe and stay hard. Believe in yourself. Believe in who you are. Believe in what you do. We're in dark and violent times, but God has put you here for just such a time as this. All right, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman, thanks for coming on Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. My honor, brother. Iron Sharpens Iron. There you go, guys. We really hope you enjoyed the interview. Thanks for listening all the way through. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. As you know by now, we are a men's ministry, and our mission is cultivating manly resilience. Specifically, we do that by providing content like this podcast that helps you forge spiritual mental and physical toughness. So here's the links I've got for you today. The first one is to the Killology Research Group. That is www.killology.com. That is everything that you need to get your fix for Lieutenant Dave Grossman. And uh, as he was talking about some of those classes he has coming up, all that information is going to be on the website. I've also got a link to all of his different books on Amazon. And then a couple of things from YouTube. I've got uh, Dave Grossman, The Bulletproof Mind. So that's a long presentation that he's done before in front of a large group of people. And then also I have a very cool interview that he did on the cleared hot podcast. That's cleared hot episode 124. Thank you guys so much for listening to the podcast. I really do appreciate it. If you would please subscribe on Apple podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Google podcasts, or Stitcher and refer your friends to listen and share this on social media. Guys, if we deserve a five-star review, please leave us five stars in a few sentences, letting us know why you like the content. 
I'm currently booking speaking engagements for the remainder of 2020 and the beginning of 2021. So if you want me to come speak on your podcast, at your men's event, to your team, at your company, whatever, hit me up via email, info at undaunted.life. Again, that's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. The website is www.undaunted.life. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at undauntedlife or facebook.com backslash undauntedlife. Check out our free devotionals on the Uversion Bible app. Just search Undaunted Life under plans. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their entire music library for our content. The intro-outro track on this podcast is our song Defender, which is off their latest record entitled Guardians. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep cultivating manly resilience, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical toughness, keep seeking the Lion of Judah. Right. Enough!